1: And boom, we're on. And today's guest, we've got Gunnar Lindblom. Gunnar, how are we? (laughs) I'm good. We are good. How are you doing? Yeah, really good. First and foremost, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Mad story. You were involved with the Detroit Mafia, in and out of prison, shootings, stabbings, Mad life, but you're here to tell the tale. Yeah, I survived. I survived. So I should probably, and thank you for having me, man, You're class act, this
0: is beautiful. Um, But uh, I guess the best way I can do is, I'm gonna give you a quick, like, overview of my story, and then I'll go back and kind of give you a little more. But ultimately, I grew up surrounded by the mafia, right? I'll get into that in a minute. And then I ended up in prison at age 29, indicted for extortion and bank robbery and, you know, all kinds of stuff, bad stuff, you know? I was a bad guy. I was in the I was in the hole in prison for 17 months. Um, got into it with the officers. They tasered me and anyway. And after they beat me up, these guys, the cops beat the crap out of me after I was cuffed, of course. Then they uh throw me in my cell and I'm bleeding all over the place, trying to catch my breath. You know, I'm in the hole. And I look over and I see this. They actually dumped a bucket of mop water on my bunk, just to be douchebags, just dumped it on my pictures and my my letters. So I see this letter from my grandmother sitting there, and uh I remember in that letter she said to me she says Alonzo you write the most beautiful letters you could be a writer right and at this time I was thinking about committing suicide like I was they were trying to give me 30 years so I'm like I just check out slip my wrist I'm not scared to die I've never been scared to die so I just like I'm just check out but then I saw that letter my grandma said you could be a writer and I thought man, maybe I love writing I love reading and so I wasn't a writer and I thought about I could get through this prison bit by writing, right? Becoming a writer. So I started writing stories in my mind. Uh, I was in the hole, so I didn't have pen and paper. But so for over 14 months in the hole, I wrote three novels in my mind. And then when I, they finally sent me to prison proper, I ordered a bunch of pens and paper and then started writing. So I started writing these books and everybody in prison loved them. You know, guys in prison are big readers. So these, these guys are just, oh my God, dude, this is an incredible story. Incredible. And it feels good, it feels good, but this is where it gets crazy. Uh, so six years in, I had finished my sixth book. It's called To Be a King. It's about a mafia family. It happened to be the only book that I'd written about a mafia family. Um, it's actually turned into a two-book series. But all my other books had nothing to do with mafia. This one did. I sent it to my friend. He thought it was amazing. So he published sample chapters of the book on Facebook, which was brand new. It was 2009. i nine. I've been locked up since 2003 at the time. So somebody... He, he posts these samples, and I'm getting fan mail in the, in the uh, prison. People are sending me, oh, my God, it's amazing. And all of a sudden, some woman writes me a letter, says, I work for a New York publisher, I'm, you know, a huge reader. I'm willing to read your manuscript. And I'm like, and can you imagine? I'm in prison, I'm writing books, and all of a sudden, some chick from New York says, I'm willing to read your book. So my friend turns it into a PDF, sends it to her. The woman reads the book in three days. It's 1,100 pages, so it's both novels together. Writes me another letter, says, this is the best book I've ever read. And you're a unicorn, man. She's like, I want to help you get this book published. So I said, Awesome, that's you know amazing. I was, I, you know, I can imagine I was through the roof, just freaking out. And so we became pen pals, me and this girl, right? And um, well, it turned out we had everything in common. We really, you know, had, well, one thing led to another, and we end up falling in love. Me and this woman from the publisher. And so she commits her life to me. I. I we figure out we're both in love. And she says, you know, what do we do with this? And I said, can you wait for me? She's like, I would wait 20 years for you. I'm like, you got to be faithful and you got to, you know, she's like, I'm 100%. I said, well, then let's get married. But I'm going to wait till we get out of prison. I don't want to get married in a prison visiting room. You know what I'm saying? So she she says, where do you want to live? I said, Northern Michigan, out in the woods in the middle of nowhere. I want to be away from people. I want to go fishing every day. I want to get away. She says, so she packs her all of her stuff up moves, tells her family that she's engaged to this prisoner, ex-gangster in prison, and they think she's insane. They think she's lost her freaking mind. It's just crazy. And so, anyway, she waits six years for me, and I get out the next day, and my boys pick me, or the day after I get out, I go get married, and I marry her, this this woman. And so, at which point, I you know, kind of had a honeymoon period for eight or nine months, but then I ended up uh, publishing my books to be a king. And they went, kind of viral at first you know they shot to the top like 30 in the mafia genre what's a tough genre and uh people everyone's going man this guy wrote the next godfather this is the greatest mafia story that's ever been told da, 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 da but um so anyways that's kind of overall my story now they're making a tv series well they're making a documentary based on my life and my love story is kind of a strong element of it and then they're making the documentaries to promote a scripted tv series starring amanda sante
1: so it's pretty cool you know what i'm saying yeah. but if- after that, then let's go right back to the start. Yeah. Where you grew up and how it all began. Give people a better understanding yeah, of you, what, what you be. went through, and everything that you're doing now. Yeah, thank you. That's where I was gonna go. So um, so grew up in Detroit.
0: My my mother was mentally ill, my father was uh, abusive drunk, right? So they divorced when I was four. And I went and moved in with my grandparents, grandma and grandpa toco in Gross Point, Michigan, kind of a rich city, um, right outside Detroit. Now, this is where it gets crazy because I had no father figure and my mother's youngest brother was like a young gangster. He was a young hustler, street guy, right? His name was Pete. He was only 12 years older than me, so he's more like an older brother, and I'm living with him. And I'm in this house in Gross Point. I'm surrounded by mafia. My grandfather was Peter Paul Tocco. His cousin was Yakimo Tocco, the boss of Detroit Mafia, the boss. And they grew up together. They lived in the same neighborhood their whole life, You know, did all the same family function, knew each other. I'm not gonna say that my grandfather was heavily, heavily involved in the mafia, But all his Gumbadis or his friends, the people around him, cousins, really, they were all Mafia. So I grew up around, surrounded by the Mafia. And when I was a little kid, I remember some girl didn't invite me to her birthday party. And I said, why? She's like, my mom says you're in the Mafia. I don't even know what that is. So I asked my Uncle Pete, what's the Mafia? He said, laugh. He's like, you'll see. You'll see someday. It's our family. And so I'm a bad kid. I moved. I'm constantly getting in fights, expelled from school, trouble. I got no father figure, right? So I'm just a bad, rambunctious, hyperkinetic. They call that. They put me on medication, and then at 14 years old, I get expelled indefinitely. They they like you can't come back. We want you out of the system, so they expelled me from the school when I was 14 years old. So my dad didn't feed us. You know, he was kind of a, a I don't wanna say abusive drunk. He just didn't feed me. I was a child. I was hungry, right? So I started selling drugs, weed. And I ended up going to this drug dealer, only drug dealer that I know. I drove this little crappy moped that I had like for 10 miles. And I begged this drug dealer uh, to front me some weed so I could make some money. He says, you know, I told him, he's like, why he says, I'm starving? I was going to give him my jacket. I had a $300 jacket. My mom bought me as a gift. I'm going to trade you this jacket for a half ounce of weed. He's like, why would you trade the jacket your mom gave you? I'm like. Cause I'm starving bro I'm starving this is a young white kid but he's covered in gold got a lowrider car, rings and everything he's baller right so he says yeah come on I'll take you to the house and he gives me a quarter pound of weed well this is where it gets gangster though because I knew these black guys in, the, in this one ghetto called panic zone right It's three or four miles from my house it was all black projects where everybody bought crack so all the crackheads would go in there by well I had a couple friends in there and I'd sell them and I'd go to see my friend uh Sydney Norton his brother was a crack dealer and so it was his cousin. And I always had good weed. So the black dudes would say, you know, sell me some of that good weed. You white boys always have the good weed. And I'm like, nah, I'd sell you a joint or two, but they were like, we'll buy it all. We'll buy anything you bring. And that's when I told this drug dealer, I said, man, I got these black dudes are crack dealers. I got stacks of money. They make eight, $900 a day. I said, I could sell it to them all. So I, I get the weed and I call my cousin, Frankie, who's now in prison serving life for murder. He was a lunatic. He stole his dad's 44 Magnum pistol, right? and uh. And so his dad was in prison at the time. So I, t- I said, Johnny, I need you to uh, protect me. I need you to have my back. We're going to go into the panic zone. We're going to sell this freaking weed, right? And he's like, yeah, I, I got you. I got you. He thought it was going to be fun. So he takes his big forty-four Magnum pistol, and we drive into this ghetto, and we park in the, like, the square. And I start telling these, all these drag- crack dealers, I'm like, Yo, I got weed, I got weed. So they come over and they're trying to finagle. And, and they look over at him, and he's sitting there with his gun. And they're like, what's up with your boy John Wayne? I said, he's just got my back, you know, we're good. So I sell all that weed in one day, a quarter pound, make like two, 300 bucks. I end up going to get uh, groceries with the money. And so that started. So what happen like a year later, my uncle Pete, the gangster one I told you about, he finds some weed in the pocket of my coat, right? And so drugs are really bad, you know, some like old school Italians, you know, mafia, whatever, they're not, they don't, drugs aren't good, right? My uncle got busted for selling coke, so my grandparents were on him about drugs all the time. Yeah, and they're yelling at him in Sicilian, and I can't understand it, but they yell at him all the time. And I said, drugs are bad, so my 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 uncle bought me this uh this jacket, this leather jacket that I liked. He had one. I said I like that jacket, so he bought me one. And I, so we were the same size and everything. So I put the ounce of weed in my Coke, because I'd go to my grandparents every weekend for dinner, right? And i go while I'm there, i like watch football with my grandpa, who's kind of a layoff bookie, and. My uncle grabs my jacket and goes somewhere, comes back and he says, Alonzo in the basement. Like, and I know his tone tells me I'm in trouble. He f- comes down with the coat, he pulls out this thing, I had a lot of money in there too. He says, what the app is this? I'm like, some weed. And I'm thinking, he's, I'm busted, he's gonna tell my grandpa and I'm in all this trouble. I said, some weed, he's like, what are you doing with it? I said, I'm trying to make a buck, man, I'm hungry, you know, whatever. He says, this is some bullshit weed and he throws it at me. He says, if you're gonna sell weed, sell good weed. Come here. So he walks me upstairs into the garage and he's got boxes of pounds of weed. He's like, how much are you paying for pounds? And I'm like, thousand, which I was paying way more. I was paying like 1,300. I'm like, thousand? He goes, good, take 10,000 a pound, you now sell my weed. And that's kind of how I got involved. And what ended up happening after that is uh, I started selling steroids. I got into the steroid racket which is a good story. What happened is this, I got introduced to this mob dude, right, who was selling steroids in the gym where I worked. I was I was involved in one of the biggest steroid busts in American history. At the time, they said it was the biggest steroid 55 guys, $8 million in cash, like 30 million doses of steroids, this is all inflated. But but anyways, this guy named Joe DiMaggio, and he's, everybody knows who he is, so I can say his name. He's been bossy, whatever. So I pr- approached him. I said, listen, I think you know my Uncle Pete. He said, Pete Toko. I said, yeah. He said, oh, I know Pete. Good guy. I know his sister. I said, it's my mom. I said, well, I got these guys who want to buy some steroids, man. I'm trying to get the plug on this. And said, oh, it's these high school kids, you know? And he says, yeah, yeah, come over to the house. So I come over to his house, and he's got this big walk-in safe, and it's got, like, thousands of bottles of steroids in there. It's like, what do you want? I'm like, well, I can get rid of it." He's like, well, just take whatever you want and then pay me when you get the money. Like, you know, once a week, come over, give me. I'm like, okay. So I don't know, at the time, the FBI are surveilling his house. His phone's wired, the whole nine. And so I start coming and going, buying steroids uh, from this dude every week. And I dress up like this, because I was respectful. Because to me, it was like a young mafioso, Italian dude, a bunch of Italian guys around him. I just assumed they were mafia. I didn't know what level, because I grew up in it. I just assumed this. And uh, so he ends up getting busted, right? This huge sweep, it's all over the news, whatever. And I'm freaking out because I know I'm involved, right? A Couple of days later, an FBI agent comes to my house and he sits me down, this big tall guy. And he says, uh, there's, he's got the ledger. Joe would mark down everything that everybody owed him in the ledger. And there were two Al's, they called me Al back then. And uh, he says, there's one guy's getting a hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff at a time, Al, and then there's one guy's getting like five thousand. I'm like, yeah, I'm the little guy. I'm like, and he's like, that's what we thought. We've been watching you, whatever. You're just selling steroids to like your high school buddies, and I was selling to like five different high schools, and like five different gyms. So I was, I was making like five grand a week at 17 years old, five thousand a week selling a steroid plus weed. Plus I was making another probably two three thousand a week in weed. So I'm just clocking, bro. I'm, I can't even spend the money fast enough. I'm buying cars and four wheelers and toys and jet skis, whatever I want. And so I get busted. A Couple days after the big bust, the the local narco cops came to me and arrested me for conspiracy to deliver two two times. $5,000 worth of steroids. Somebody set me up and I got sent to the cops and and they ended up busting me and arresting me. And I bond out right away and I fight the case for a year and a half. And in the end, my my grandpa ends up paying a judge $10,000 so I don't go to prison. Because I was fighting with a lawyer and all this. And by the time I got sentenced, I was 19 years old. And I, my uncle says, Grandpa's gonna take care of this. I said, What's he gonna do? He's like, He's gonna go see the judge. I said, What's he gonna do to judge? He goes, Don't worry, he'll take care of it. So then I go to court next time and they're like, All right, we're gonna give you six months in the county jail. And I told my uncle, I said, What did he do? What did Grandpa do? He said, Gave him 10,000 bucks. He had dinner with him, slipped him 10 G's, and now you're not going to prison. So I do my time in jail. And this is where it got. What was of... that like? Jail?
1: Yeah. For, at the first time? Yeah, it was my first time in jail. It yeah. was that feeling? Not fun. Mm-mm. Nineteen adult prison. Yeah. What was a Detroit's prison like? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So,
0: whether it's Cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. that is a harsh lesson in business
1: sports is and not as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together i didn't want
0: to do another stomp you out speech it opened so, up so
1: many know, more doors the show is called
0: the, the deal. deal listen to the deal
1: listen to the deal on spotify
0: well this wasn't a prison it was a jail
1: so what's the difference
0: all oh, way different way different oh the prisons are way worse you know they're way more violent you get um you know in, in prison there's a lot of maniacs and killers and uh, really hard criminals. County jail is a lot of drunks and crackheads and stuff like that. Minor offenses, yeah. Minor offenses, yeah. So I ended up, I did get in a couple fights. I beat some dudes' ass in there. I, I hit one dude with. A, this is how I end up in the hole later on. Uh, this is years later, uh, before I went to prison. I went to the hole by. I punched somebody. Some kid, a little like light skinned blackhead, kind of muscle bound, stole something out of my commissary while I was in church, and I went and confronted him, and he got tough. So I just wham! I just. I, shattered his eye socket I actually had to pay for restitution for his ambulance ride to the hospital crushed his eye and knocked him out and then I dared anyone anyone else want to steal from me but at the time when I was 19 there's an interesting story there but I found this thing called the daily Bread um and I didn't know anything about God or Christ or anything like that but I started reading this daily bread it really spoke to my heart so that's the first seed that was ever planted regarding God I didn't really know God none I raised Catholic but I didn't really know God none but that was' it so I get out this is where it really gets crazy is. So I get out of jail. I'm 20 years old now. My mom had just died, you know, which you know sucked. Or she died right after I got out, so she didn't see me. No, she. Excuse me. She died before I went to jail. Um, so I get out, and I'm living with my grandparents again. My grandma, Grandpa Tocco, you know, the ones that are basically just in epicenter of the mafia. There's this very tight community of Sicilians who came from the same little town of Sicily outside of Palermo called Terracini, and there's like. It's like 100 families, they all came to Detroit, but then the, the, the mob families, there's like five major ones, so like a nucleus, and they all lived in the same neighborhood and they all you know, did business together, um, promoted each other's businesses. They built a church for themselves. They had clubs and societies and they were very secretive. It was all, all mob stuff, right? So I knew a lot of these old mob guys all my life. I'd been growing up with them, you know, and they just around them, it's like, you know, old uncles, you, you don't really pay attention to your old uncles when you're a kid, right? But now in my teens, my uncle Pete started telling me, you know, Tony's the street boss of the mafia and uncle Jack is the boss, and this person is that person, and that person, this one. And I've started, now I'm paying attention. I'm kind of seeing how people treat them. And the higher the level, the mafioso, the more respect people give them, you know what I'm saying? So you see them and they shake their hand, hey, Pete, how you doing, goodbye, they shake, and they give them a kiss on the cheek, you know. and so I'm noticing all this stuff. So then I'm just fresh out of jail. I'm not out two days, my friend fronts me 10 pounds of weed, and another friend fronts me like $5,000 worth of steroids. So I'm literally home two days, and I'm back in the game doing exactly what I was doing before I went to jail. And so I'm hustling. And all of a sudden, my grandmother says, you gotta go to your cousin Nina's uh, graduation party. This is where it gets interesting. And I was like, "Okay, yeah, I'll go." He's like, "You gotta go." I'm like, "You go." And I forget about it, right? I grab my ninja. I got a ninja. I drive out to the beach. I'm with my friends, throwing a football and beach hitting on all these girls, whatever. I get a page. It's my grandmother. I'm like, Why did my grandmother paging me? It's kind of weird. This is back when pagers were a thing. Do you remember pagers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, <clears throat> so I go to the phone. I'm like, yeah, what's up, Grandma? She's like, "Why aren't you at Nina's graduation party?" I'm like, "Ah, oh, I forgot. I'm at the beach." She's like, "You need to get there. You need to bring her a card. Have some respect for your cousin. She just graduated high school." I'm like. So I said, all right, fine. I tell my boys I got to go, jump on a motorcycle. I stop at the, um, the like a Rite Aid to get a card for her. And I ended up, so I, this is funny what I was wearing. You'll laugh. I wear a suit vest, suit vest with no shirt underneath, a big gold chain with an Italian horn and like khaki Z Cavarici shorts or it's black, black Z Cavarici. So I'm wearing a suit vest, no shirt. I was a little muscle bomb. Yeah, I just did some bodybuilding shows. When you I was, on steroids? No, not at the time, but everybody thought I was because I sold them, you know what I'm saying? They just assumed I was because I sold them. But I had good genetics, pretty good genetics. I worked out really hard. I ate good. I was serious about it. So I looked pretty. I was like about 190 pounds ripped up. I did three bodybuilding shows when I was 19. You know, I always placed top five. You know, I was pretty good. Not, I wasn't great. But um. so I show up at this big party. It's in Girls Point. Not a huge house, but a big house. Very expensive area. And uh, I come walking in, and they got a circus tent over the back of the, the back, you know, like a big tent over the backyard and there's all these tables and all these people are sitting there eating, all the Sicilian foods laid out. And all my little cousins see me and they're like, yeah, Alonzo, Alonzo, I wanna dance, like little girls. Just like the godfather, I said, I dance, the music's playing. So I put them on my feet and I'm, you know, dancing with them on my feet, these little girls. I go over there and get a plate of food. My aunts are like, hey, how you doing, Alonzo? Good to see you, blah, And I'm putting this plate on my food and my grandmother yells. She's like, Alonzo, have you seen Nina? And I said, uh, no, I just got here, you know? it's like, she just went inside with her friends go see her, so I'm like, all right, you know, I haven't seen my cousin Nina in like four years. So she was 14 years old when I last saw her. So now I go in there wearing this outfit and she's in there, this is actually a funny story. I walk in, I surprise her and I'm just like, uh, she's pouring wine into these glasses, she's only 18. I said, better not let your mom see that. She turns around and she's like, Alonzo, how are you doing? And I pull out the card and I give her this card, you know, congratulations, you're going to college, use the money on books or something, whatever. And she opens it up and she looks at me and she says, you don't have to give me nothing. I know you just got out of jail. I said no, it's fine. Take it. I don't know. She's like, you don't have to do. Try it. I said, take it, whatever. She's like, I want you need to meet my friends. So we walk in the dining room, and there's like eight little teenage girls there. And they're all cuties, you know. And they went to a private school, so they weren't around boys all their life. So now I'm this pretty boy, like Jersey Shore looking guy. I walk in there, and they're all like, you know, looking at me like I, like they've never seen like an alien, and it was uncomfortable. So they're all asking me and talking about college. So I end up going back outside after. This is where something pivotal happened. So I just hang out with them for a few minutes. And I go outside and I'm kind of still eating my food. And then I hear my name uh, at a table. here, Alonzo. And I they're speaking Sicilian. So I don't really understand it that well. And I look over and my grandpa's talking to a guy named Tony Jackaloni. So Tony Jack they call him. And this guy is the, like probably the most powerful mobster in Detroit. Even though he's not the boss, he could be if he wanted to. But the previous boss... He had met his mentor, he loved him. He said he'd never take the family over, or whatever. So, but he's the street boss. And everybody in the, Detroit knows this guy's the main guy. This the, they know Jack Tolkien's a boss, but you never see him. He's just like the, the king on his throne. You never see him out of his castle or whatever. But Tony's in the street. He's a drug dealer, he's an extortionist, he's a loan shark, he's just, he runs his crew, of gangsters, whatever. So he's with my grandpa. And I hear my grandpa say to him, uh, Tony, you think you can get Alonzo some work? And, I, and, I, and he goes, yeah, sure, Pete, I'll, I can get, put him to work. I'll find something for him. And my grandmother says, no, no, he doesn't need to work. I don't need him to work. He's, he's going to college. Well, I, when I was in jail, I actually won a scholarship. I, not much, it's like $700. But I, I scored so high in the GED, which is like a general diplomacy equivalency. I scored so high that I got a $700 scholarship and a stamp letter from George Bush. And so I told my grandparents and they're like, we'll match it, 700. My dad will match it 700. So you got 2,100 bucks, go to college. So that was the plan. And my grandma says, No, he's going to college. He doesn't need to work. And this is the conversation. Then my grandpa says, Yeah, hey, I still got to work. You know, he needs to stay out of trouble or whatever. So my grandma says, No, he needs to work. And at one point, she says, I said, No, wham, and slams her hand on the table. I said, No. And they all get quiet. And so, so I walk over. I'm like, Yo, do I got to say in this? And they look at me, this whole table full of old Sicilians. They're like, You know what we're talking about? I said, Yeah, yeah. Grandpa asked Uncle Tony if we could find me some a job, you know. She's like, yeah, you don't need to work, forget it. Boom, that's when she slammed her hand. And so I get home later and I said, what's with Grandma and Tony? She don't like Tony. And she says, you know what Tony does. I said, what do you mean? He's like, I, you, you want to give me a job? He's like, he rolls his eyes. I'm like, oh, is that kind of job? He's like, you know. So, I, And I didn't realize he was trying to push me into the direction of the mafia. So about a week later, Tony comes over to the house and he says, listen, I got a guy. Uh, you, you ever heard of Brownies on the Lake? And he says, I said, yeah, it's a big nightclub on the water, right? He's like, yeah go in there tell him that I sent you and that you know, you're know you looking for, to work security at the door. So I said, all right, cool. His name, the guy's name was Al, ironically. So I go in there and this weird little old dude, and I said, hey, Tony Giacalone said you, uh, that you want to give me the head security job. I didn't say you're looking for security. I said, Tony said you're going to give me the head security job. And the guy's like, Well, Tony Jack says that, then you got to do it. So I get in there and I start working. And this is a major mafia hangout. It's the high end place, very high. It's right on the water. High rollers pull up with their boats and they park their boats on the deck. And you know, it's like fifteen dollars for a top shelf drink. And so I'm now twenty years old, working security at this uh, at this nightclub with all these mobsters coming in all the time, and uh, they're they know who I am that i'm a toko and they all think i'm like my last name's toko and they're like hey cousin or they're hugging me and kissing me on the cheek all these older mob guys <coughs> so i start connecting with all these dudes right getting numbers they got a scam he's got a safe job he's got larceny guys he's got a crew at chop shop you know stolen cars all this stuff so i was like networking with these dudes and uh that kind of that drove me in that direction and you know, you, you you could ask me basically any kind of racket you know and i could i you know you ask me if you want to know about when i got shot or stabbed yeah no
1: but how many's in the crew in the detroit mafia
0: i don't know i don't know a couple hundred i guess but i i didn't know like i didn't i only know a handful you know a small handful you know when did you get proper involved in it that's when straight away well that's when when i was 20 working at this nightclub and Tony got me a job there. And then he came to see me while I was working there was standing around talking to me. And everybody's going, damn, Tony Jack talking to that L kid, the bouncer. He must be somebody. So, Tony, this is where it gets serious. I'll tell you. Tony called me one day after this and he says, I need seven o'clock in the morning, phone rings ring, 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 right, right. I was sleeping in the basement, my room. I hear the phone ring. I hear the, my grandma answer, uh, Como she says on the phone then I hear him say, okay, hold on. So he comes to the stairs. She's like, Alonzo, Tony's on the phone. I said, seven o'clock in the morning. I'm like, Tony who? Because I got a bunch of cousin Tonys and uncles. He says, She goes, Tony Jack. She don't like Tony. She don't like Tony Jack because she knows he's a gangster. So I pick up the phone and I'm like, Tony? And he waits for my grandma to hang up. And he says, listen, I need a favor. I'm like, sure, Tony, anything. What do you need? He's like, I know, I need you to do something. I'm like, what? She says, like, I have a girlfriend of mine. I don't know if it's his girlfriend or who it is but her ex showed up at her house last night and slapped her around, and he's there passed out drunk. You know, can you handle that? He didn't say what to do. He said, yeah, I said, yeah, sure, I can do that. Where is it? It's like, it's like three miles from you. It's just five minutes away. I said, yeah, I got it. He's like, you sure you got it? I said, yeah. So long story short is I get my workout partner, Dario, this big muscle-bound Italian kid, and uh, and I go over there. The guy's passed out in the bed. He's kind of a bigger guy, about your size, muscle-bound, handsome guy. I'd say he's 30 years old, passed out in the bed. This guy has longer, a little bit longer hair. And he's passed out. So I try to be cool with him. I was like, I I bang the wall. Boom, boom, boom. It's time to go, motherfucker. You got to go. And he rolls over He goes, can I curse on here? Yeah, of course Uh, you can. He looks at me and goes, who the fuck are you, kid? Get the fuck out of here. And I said, I'm the boogeyman, motherfucker. he goes, he laughs and he rolls over. I I grab him by his hair. Boom. I yank him out of the bed. I'm just going to drag him out of there. But he starts fighting, trying to fight me. So I start pounding him. I got this big gold ring on. I got this big nugget ring on. And I got him, it's like wham, 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 wham. I just pounding his face and bro, pounding him. And this blood splattering all over the place. It's in, Now I got him in the hallway, I'm dragging down the hallway. Wham, wham. He's begging me, he's begging me to stop. All right, man, all right, all right, all right. I'm dragging him out, blood smeared all the way. I drag him down these stairs and I take him outside. And then I tell him, you know, fuck out of here. He's like, look what you did to my face. Cause he gets in his car in the van. He looks in the mirror, he's he like, look what you did to my face. I said, Motherfucker, you ever come back, and put your hand on this woman? You need a surgeon to put your face together. That's why I tell him. She starts reaching under her seat, though. And I, I open the yank the door. What are you doing, bro? And I grab his hand. and He's got a crowbar under there. I freaking yanked the crowbar. I said, Motherfucker, I'll freaking kill you, motherfucker. I threatened to kill him. I said, Get the prick out of here. And then I called Tony, and the girl called Tony and said, You know, whoever that guy was who came over to my house this morning, he was for no games. He's beat the shit out of my ex. And I've smashed him, bro. So. Then, then Tony says, okay, this is a kid I can use. Like this this is a tool. This guy's a tool. He's a young, tough guy. He ain't scared to fight or hurt people, or whatever. And so essentially after that, he starts um, putting me to work, uh, you know, doing collections for bookies and loan sharks and various things. But like a, a funny story is that, that I got, he had me working security at poker games and th- casino nights, things like that. Now it's kind of, Spotty, you know, I might not see him or hear from him for a month. And he's like, Yeah, I need you to do this, right? And there were other guys, there was other mob guys I'd met too f- through him and in the club uh, where I was bouncing who were like, Yo, I want to do this, or we can do this, that. One day, this is a funny story. You'll appreciate this, it's a really crazy story. One day I was at my cousin Angelo's house and his mother's, my aunt, this really beautiful woman. She looks like Sophia Vergara. So this, and we're all sitting around smoking weed by the pool. And it's like, two o'clock in the afternoon, you know? She comes out and brings us like lemonade and sandwiches. But she's rich too, she's a baller, got a big mansion. She married a dude, first of all, her husband's in prison, but then she married another guy and then divorced him and got like millions of dollars. So now she's living, she's a baller. And she comes outside and she says, how come you guys don't work? And we're all like, you know, we do work, you know? We're like, well, yeah, we have dice games and poker games and we got to sell weed and whatever. It's like, no, no, you need to actually work. You gotta find a job. She says, Antonio used to do construction contracting. with Antonio's the, pr- the guy in prison, her husband in prison. And she's always going on about Antonio did this and Antonio did that. And we're just like you know rolling our eyes, like, you know, sure, sure. And finally she says, you, we said, we don't know nothing about contracting. How are we going to contract? It? She said, you don't need to know nothing. You just sell the job and then contract it out to other people. And they do the job and you make a piece. So we kind of think, well, she leaves, we smoke a joint, we're thinking about it. And I say to my cousin Angelo and my, my cousin Dominic are there, I said, you know, we could we could do that, you know? And, uh, he's like, we don't know any contractors. And I'm like... What about Pepe? Pepe's this old contractor we see all the time in the Eastern market. The Eastern market is kind of like the, the epicenter of the Detroit Mafia. It's like it's like the Little Italy, like New York's little Italy, but it's the Eastern market in Detroit. And it's all owned by the mom. My grandfather had a business there for 25 years, a, a food delivery business, a big one, which would have been impossible to get without the mafia. But, anyways, so we're at this place called Roma's one day, and we're all sitting around the table, busting balls, you know, laughing or whatever. And then comes walking this dude, Pepe, which was funny, because he always wore this tracksuit. He had his, like, a burgundy Puma tracksuit. Say I wore it every day. Every time I'd see him, he was wearing this tracksuit. It's kind of weird. So I say, you know, Angelo, whose father knows the guy, I said, uh, go over there and ask him if he can get us some work. He's like, I'm not going over and ask them. You know, we, we believe he's a made guy, in the mob, like a high-level mob guy, right? We don't know if he's made, but, you know, assumed he was. Because he was with another guy named Tony, this this other guy, or excuse me, Salvi was this guy's name, and um, so these guys won't go over there and talk to him. So I just walk over there. and said, Pepe, listen, we got this new construction company, contractors. You know, we're trying to find some work. You know, and he's like, What do you do? I'm like, I can do anything. You got your own equipment? He said, Yeah, well, I'm lying. I'm just lying. Saying, Yeah, I got it. And uh, ultimately, I go visit him at his office with my cousin Angelo, and he says, All right, I got this job for you guys to do. I kind of we were like, We're hungry. Why we East Side work and da da da. Since so, so I got this job, <laughs> there's a strip mall I'm building, and I need that. They're building an extension to it. I need to dig out this found, old foundation, extend it. Da 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 dah. Like how much? He's like, I'll give you guys twenty-five grand. And then I kind of do the math. I'm like, all right, cool. We could probably make five, six thousand bucks off it. So it's not that bad, at least. So he gives us twelve thousand up front, and he says the job. When the job's done, I'll pay you the rest. So we go contract these other mob dudes, Tringali crew, these big, and these like big tough guy, muscle bound, huge mother, He got this guy named Andre, this huge giant dude. And I'm kind of scared of the guys, we're young, you know? And he, uh, so I get these guys to do the job, they do it. And I still owe them like five, six grand. So I go back to Pepe and they say, you know, a job's done. And he says, yeah, I'll pay you when the job's done. I'm like, no, the job's done, we did it. He's like, you already inspected, it. he said it was good. He's like, no, no, when the, when the mall's done. What do you mean he didn't say that? He said, I told you when the job's done. I said, "Well, we did our part of the job. I need this money. I got to pay these guys, man." He's like, oh, "That ain't how it works. You got to wait till I get paid on the mall, and that could be that's like six months away." So now the young thug in me c- comes out. Like I'm not the kind of guy, dude. I was a, a violent guy. I liked to fight. I was always knocking efforts. I was known for it. For knocking guys out in clubs or wherever at the track. Anyone who owed money, if they somebody owed money, owed you money, you send to me. If they didn't have the money, I, wham, a jaw shot them and knock them out right in front of everybody. So this is what happens. So, this guy, he do not know me that good. He just knows I'm Pete Tocco's grandson. So, he's like, Oh, you're Pete Tocco's grandson. I know Pete, known him my whole life. So, I start arguing. I said, Bro, listen, I need his money. I got to pay these freaking guys. He's like, No, oh, I ain't know how it works. And then I snap and I say, Listen, motherfucker, you're going to pay me my money, man. He's like, If you don't, I'm going to come back and burn this motherfucker down and put a bullet in your ass. He's like, What'd you say? I said, You heard me, man. I'll burn this bitch to the ground. So, you're going to pay me my money. Angelo's pulling on my arm going shut up hell man shut up shut up you know like you crazy talking to this freaking mobster like this i'm like fuck him i don't give a fuck and he's like oh you think you're a tough guy huh he's like yeah somebody's gonna come with this i pull i raise my shirt i go i got one too they better be a good shot so he says get the fuck out of my office blah 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 blah. so next thing you know turns out this guy goes to his boss this guy named salvi who is a made guy and he's got a business in the market he's like a high level mob dude right kind of a High-level dude, like, way up there. And anyways, we're just punk-thug punk kids, you know what I'm saying? And this guy, Pepe, tells Salvi, Salvi what I said to him, and now this guy, Salvi's like, this is super disrespectful, man. This kid's got to go. He's disrespected other people. I I had disrespected other people, including Tony Giacalone once when I scabbed his poker players. I'll tell you that in a minute. But anyways, see, he tries to get me killed. He's like, we want this kid dead, you know what I'm saying? And ultimately, it kind of the guys that he was trying to... Look for, they knew me and liked me, you know, looked to, for the killers. So they, they like, call my uncle, my uncle calls my grandpa and says, listen, Salvi's trying to freaking have Al killed over this crap. So my grandpa, who knows I'm friends with Tony, I'm good friends with Tony Giacalone, not good friends, but he's an old man, but he likes me, anyways. So he calls him, so they end up having a sit down. Like, so they, like mob sit down, with my uncles, my grandpa, Tony, Salvi and Pepe, and so, I, this is all relayed to me after the fact. You know, after, like, I didn't know I wasn't there. I, at the time, I'm just like, I'm gonna burn this guy's place down. <laughs> like, if he doesn't pay me my money, I'm gonna freaking burn his business down or whatever. That's what I, where I'm at. Meanwhile, he's trying to have me killed. So, all of a sudden, they have this meeting, and Tony tells these guys, Why didn't you pay him his money? He said, Tony should have heard how the kid talked to Pepe. He's nobody talking. And he, first of all, Tony says, Listen, Alonzo's not in the mob. He's not a made guy, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, the rules kind of don't apply to him. And he's a young kid. And he said, what would you do if somebody tried to screw you out of, when you were 20 years old, somebody tr- tried to screw you out of $12,000, you would've done the same freaking thing. And they're like, eh. He's like, and then you want to have the kid killed? This is, you don't pee your whole life. This guy's your friend your whole life. You're gonna kill his grandson because he just wants his money. And Tony says to the guys, you're gonna pay him your, his money. And I don't want to hear nothing about this ever again. And if something happened to Alonzo, I'm gonna blame you.
1: Because Tony liked me, so... Who is Tony, for people who don't know?
0: Tony Jack is the street boss of the Detroit mob. The street boss. So, is it dangerous? Listen, they suspect him of up to 50 murders. So he's very dangerous. Well, okay, so he's the number one suspect in the Jimmy Hoffa case. So that's the guy Jimmy Hoffa was going... You know Jimmy Hoffa. The Irishman. Yeah, exactly. So there's a character based on him in The Irishman. So he's the guy that Hoffa was going to meet the day that Hoffa vanished. He was going to meet Tony Jack. So he's a guy who's, you know, they believe responsible for up to 50 murders. I don't really know all this at the time. I'm like, I'm young. I just know he's a gangster. He's an old mob dude, whatever. He's friends with my grandpa. You know, I call him an uncle because his daughter married one of my cousins. So we're kind of related to marriage. But I don't know
1: him that well. It's just, you want to make a buck? Go do this. Want to make a buck? Go do that. So he likes you then. He likes you. What happens then when you try to get your money? So So the guy you're fighting with, he's a made the guy? Yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. Did you know this? No, I mean, I suspected. So what happens then?
0: Well, Tony tells him in the sit-down, you know, let this go. We don't, you know, we don't, this, this is stupid. You're not going to kill a guy over this money. Pay him his mother-effing money. So Tony, then, you know, they call him. My grandpa says, you go get your money from Pepe and forget this, leave this alone. So I can walk in. My cousin Angelo won't even go in there. He's terrified. Thinks I'm going to get killed. I walked in there. He goes, what are you, this Pepe, this little dude in his tracksuit. He's like, what do you want? I said, my money, man. He's like, I said, give me my freaking money. So he reaches in this drawer, uh, filing cabinet, pulls out a little lockbox, pulls out the cash, and he hands me the money. And he says, I don't want to ever see you again, motherfucker. Get the F out of my business. And then he complained about something like we left some trash on the job site, and I had to clean up your mess in the job site. And so I peeled a $100 bill off of the knot of money. I crumbled it up. I go, here you go. That'll cover that. And I throw it, it hits him in the face, and he drops on the ground. And then when I, he had already told me once not to slam his door. When I came in, I slammed the door. But this is another time. So when I left, I was like, shoo, wham, boom, I slammed the door shut, knocked a bunch of stuff off the wall. <laughs> totally disrespectful. But yeah, that was that was a close call.
1: I could have been I could have been, certainly been killed there, but. And you're um, only a kid. You're only yeah, a young boy, 20. Yeah, 20, yeah, 21, mm-hmm. something yeah. like that. So what other jobs were you getting asked to do?
0: Mostly collections, like collecting for bookies and stuff like that. So
1: but, you were like a debt collector?
0: Yeah, I was a muscle, basically, mm-hmm. for, for bookies. And, but I had all these different scams and rackets going. Like, for example, my uncle would always say to me, you know, what do you got on the floor and like, for money making? And I said, I got this guy who works for an alarm company in, in the gym, kind of a square. I said, I think I can get him to tell us how to, like, deactivate alarms and we can start this robbery ring and we can break into houses and businesses. So I go to the dude, my grandpa, or my uncle said, go for it, man, put him on the hook. So I tell the guy, listen, can you help us beat lar- alarms? He's like, oh bro, I'm the technician, this is what I do. And he's like, I can t- show you how to fry the alarms, how to you know get through them, bypass them, whatever. He said, this is where it gets crazy. He goes, I can even tell you when people aren't gonna be home. How was that? He says, Well, a lot of people, when they go to their home, they f- they go in, they forget to punch the code in their alarm, and the phone rings a minute later, and it's the alarm company going, Is it you? or is there- Oh, sorry, I didn't hit the alarm. Sorry, my bad. Well, so, a lot of people, before they go on a vacation or a trip, they'll notify the alarm company, Listen, I'm gone for a month. So, if a I- you know, the alarm goes off, it's real. And they have a database of this. And this dude who worked there was able to get us into this database and he'd say, this person's gone for a week, this person's gone. So we start, so we put a crew together, larcenist. One guy's a safe guy. One's, I was the crash car driver. So I drove the car and used the police scanner, listened to the police scanner in case somebody, the neighbor saw something and called the cops. And if they sent a car, a cop car, I'd know. And I'd walkie talkie to guys inside and say, yo, yo, cops are coming, let's go, go, go. So they pull up in a van. And I'd be in the street in this crappy car called the crash car. Are you familiar with the crash car? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So he's, I, I drive. They called cr- them like a ringer back home. Yeah, a yeah. ringer, a doubler. Yeah, just dump, it, like block, block the
0: traffic yeah, and just yeah, let yeah, them yeah. get away. So you know, it's it's gives you plausible. Blood. I had a police scanner in there, so if they called me, they'd be like, yeah, well, you got a police scanner, but anyway. So these guys were going into these houses and and just raping them, man. These 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 mansions. So my my part of the job was our score was I get to pick pick one item. From each score, or jewelry or whatever, right? So my uncle's and his partner owned a pawn shop, so I learned about watches and gold and jewelry and stuff like that. So every time there was a big score, I'd pick a watch, right? So I ended up ended up with like twenty like high end watches over like the year, and uh, it ended up in the newspaper. And and like we had a, it was too hot, we were hitting all these houses. They they'd go up at two three in the morning. They'd fry the alarm. They I knew how to open it up and. Put these wires on it, and then like with a battery, you zap it, and there's no memory. Alarm's off. You can walk, right, and then they break in, and they go, and they be in there for hours, man, looking for art, for money, for cash, and you know these are high end houses too, you know, rich people houses. But um, so we, that's the type of stuff I was doing, kind of with some these guys, some of the guys I was doing it with were mob tied guys, you know, associates, whatever. But um, that lasted a while. And then I ended up uh, doing doing a, a boat scam where we we were stealing boats which is a funny story. One day I was, my uncle said, you know how to drive a boat because I like the fishing, right? I said, I can drive a boat. He says, listen, I need you to drive a boat across the lake. So Canada is on the other side of Lake St. Clair where I live. So I don't know if you're familiar but Detroit. It's Detroit is one side of the river. Canada's on the other side. And so he says, I need you to take this boat across the river to a, a marina in Canada. Call this number. The guy's name is Frank and give him the boat. He's gonna give you some cash and you're gonna give you cash to cousin Anthony. Well, my cousin Anthony had a party that night on the boat. So we were partying on the boat and then my uncle says, I need you to take it. So I know it's a scam. I said, has the boat been reported stolen? He's like, no, not yet. I said, don't lie to me, Uncle Pete, don't lie to me. He says, eh, don't worry, you'll be fine. I'll give you a couple thousand bucks. So after we partied on this big, like not a yacht, but like a 50 foot cabin cruiser, it's kind of a yacht. We partied all night. Sleep in the morning. I start this boat. I've never driven a boat like this, man. You know how hard it is to drive a big, giant boat, bro? Trying to back it out of this marina at Metro Beach and uh, go across the lake and call the guy Frank. He comes there. He hands me 8,000 bucks and uh, I give it to, I ended up giving it to Tony Jack because it was Tony Jack's, like the guy Frank in Canada, that was his connection, Tony Jack. So, anyways, I asked the guy Frank while I'm there, I'm like, you interested in any more boats? he says, yeah, man, you know? So what they would do is retag them. They would take the boats in Canada, the stolen boats from America, and retag them, and give them all new paperwork, and then sell them in Canada, or even Europe, or whatever. These boats were worth $100,000, dollars you know? So they were retagging them. So I, start, me and I put a little crew together, and we start stealing these boats. And then it starts getting more and more and more, and we're selling these boats. And actually, that made it in the paper, too. But at some point, Tony goes to me, he finds out. He says, what are you doing going to my guy, Frank? That's my guy. If You want to sell stolen boats, you go through me, you don't go directly to my guy. And I said, Well, we're only making f- a couple thousand bucks, five thousand bucks a boat, and we're splitting it two, three ways. I mean, I, there's nothing left. He's like, I don't care, I, got, I gotta have my peace. And so I was like, I stopped doing it, I stopped doing it. But it, what's it, the scariest job you ever went on? Those, those larceny jobs are pretty scary. Um, Nick, drug robberies, like. <laughs> Boston in the house with DEA uniforms, you got a DEA jacket on and a badge, kicking the freaking door with guns. You know, they all think it's a wreck. Get on the ground, we zip tie them, take all their money. Uh, one time a guy, I asked the guy, I got him on the ground. My boy's getting the money in the dope. And I say, is there anyone in the house? Anyone else in the house? He's like, nobody's here, nobody's here. And uh, actually, I actually have a pistol on him. And so all of a sudden, some guy comes running down the stairs with a gun. And I'm, like, caught totally off guard. I got my gun on this guy. And I look up, and this guy's got a gun around, like, the corner. And he fires, like, eight shots before I even react. and like, you know, boom. All those shots missed. It was just like the movie uh, Pulp Fiction where they, he shoots him, and it goes around, and it's like, dude, I didn't get hit. That's crazy, man. But I, uh, I have been uh, shot twice. Um, and one time was a drug robbery. I was robbing this Chaldean. Uh, it's an Arabic guy uh, for a quarter kilo of heroin. Kind of knew the guy for a while, but he was cocky, kind of a douchebag. That's what I was. It's, I was the guys like if I didn't like a guy, I would build up a rapport with him and then just take his shit. You know, what I mean, just take twenty pounds, fifty pounds of weed, whatever. So this is twenty thousand dollars worth of heroin, and he, we got a kind of argument like you know over who car was nicer. Like we got that's how stupid we were. Like we got an argument whose car is better, right? And he was being a cocky douchebag. I said, I'm gonna rob this motherfucker. So I tell him I need a quarter kilo of heroin. I tell him to meet me in Detroit in the city in a parking lot behind a restaurant pull up next to him, get in a the car, you know, I, he hands me a, a bag with a quarter kilo, big block of when I throw it in my back seat, I hand him $20,000, right, and he, we're still talking, you know, we're between two cars, and he stuffs the money in his inside pocket, and uh, and at that point, I pull up my gun, and say, give me the jacket, my effer, and he looks at me, he's like, are you serious, bro? I said, dead serious, bro, don't make this be your last day, you can make it up, and I got him the gun on, give me the freaking jacket, the frick, man? He starts pulling off his jacket, but as he slips off his jacket, he pulls a pistol out and starts firing. God loves me. I I know that. He starts firing like as he's raising the gun. Bang, 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 bang. So first round, shot hits the ground. Second shot hits me in the shin. Third shot hits the pocket of my leather jacket. I found it later, the bullet. So I got 25 or something. Actually went wrapped around and came on this side. I said, well, this is my pocket. And then I figured it out. And then the fourth shot jammed. So he had me dead to right. He comes comes out of his jacket and and as he's handed it to me, I grab the jacket and all of a sudden he's like, pop, 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 and then it jams. Right when he gets to like my chest, it jams. And I have my gun. So I just, I raise my gun and his eyes get big and he takes off running. Bang, 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 bang. I start shooting at him and uh, he runs off, but I take the jacket and and I get away. That's certainly one of a a scariest moment. I'll give you my scariest moment though. The, The scariest moment is, and this is a good story, is uh. When I was about 20 years old, 21, so two, something like that, I had this cousin, a straight laced like, kid who lived in the suburb. Thought he was a mobster. You know, they all all these young kids, they all think they're like, because they're related, they have a, a name that's a mafia name. They're like, oh, I'm a mobster. He's selling Coke crack in the suburbs, way out in the suburbs. And he calls me one day, he says, Al, I got an emergency. I tried to rock up an ounce of Coke and I can't bring it back. You know, I don't know if you know about rocking up cocaine, yeah. but it's, 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 it's this process. And I'd seen it done. I had guys seen it. i seen people rock up kilos. So I said, Don't move. I'll be there. I'm on my way. I jump on my ninja. I shoot over there. He lives in a nice neighborhood, like five, six miles from me. I get there. I said, Give me the soda. We'll heat it up. Blah, blah, blah. And we end up pulling back like three quarters of an ounce of crack, right? I said, What are you doing with this crack? And he says, I'm selling it, man. I'm moving out here. I said, yeah, you got selling crack out in the suburbs? He's like, Yeah, bro. They come every day, all day. I'm like, You're kidding me. That's crazy, dude. So he said, I'm like, How much are you paying for coke? And he's like, I'm paying freaking 1100 bucks an ounce. I said, bro, I could get it. To you. I'll get it to you for cheaper, man. I'll give it to you for a thousand. It'll be better, weed, better coke. He says, all right, cool, cool. And I said, you can buy hard, which is rocked up, or whatever you want. Seven hundred bucks for the rock already, or eleven $1, hundred for the, or 10, 1, for the powder. He's, you know, and he wanted rock. So I go in the ghetto, down in the ghetto. I got all these friends who buy weed for me because I've been a weed dealer for years now, you know. And I have all these black friends who live in the ghetto, and they sell weed for me. So I got weed houses open and stuff like that. And I say to these guys, and I got connections. I said, I need an ounce of coke. And they're like seven hundred bucks, you know. So I'm like, all right, cool. I'm gonna buy an ounce or two here and there. So I start buying ounces of coke from these black dudes um, all the time. And uh, this is crazy, man. And then so I'm going back and forth to, to sell them. And one day I come to get this. Uh, so I am making like you know five hundred bucks a day extra money off this coke. It's not a lot, but it's easy. So one day I'm, I'm waiting in the car for this guy. My, my dope dealer, the cocaine guy, uh, this black dude, he gets in the car. He goes, i got to have $850. I'm like, I'm not paying $850. I, you know, I, he's like, I need $850. i am not paying it. Now, they know i got a gun. I always have a gun. I carry a gun right here. It's out. They know that. I'm in my girlfriend's car because my car was too flashy. I didn't want to drive down there in a the hood in a flashy like, Jeep with kickers and tinted windows and stuff. So the guy says, I, I said, I'll pay $750. That's it. So the guy says, okay, I'm going to go in the house and rock it up for whatever reasons, these guys decide they're going to rob me. I don't know why. I've been dealing with them for freaking six months, and they just decide they're going to rob me. I don't, know, I don't know why. And so they have a crack house across the street, and I see some dudes in the windows, and they're all looking around. they're looking. I start getting nervous, man. I start the car, put the car in neutral, right? I back, I back up, so if I have to take off, I have to take off. So finally, in like 20 minutes, I beat the horn like, yo! And then he comes, he's like, one second, he comes out, and he comes out, gets in the car. The guy looked like Grant Hill, a basketball player. Anyone who knows who that is, a famous Detroit basketball player. That's who he reminded me of. Uh, he gets in the car, he says, I need 800. I said, bro, I'm not paying 800. I go around the corner. I got five different guys. i get it for 700. And all of a sudden, at that moment, because I'm sitting there talking to him in the car like this, I feel something against the side of my head. And I hear, don't move, motherfucker. And I, my reaction was they were joking. Like, because I've been dealing with these guys. I am thinking it's kind of a joke. Like, they're just kind of, like, oh, got you kind of thing. And so I, I look and there's a freaking pistol right in my face. And the guy goes to rack around. Why he didn't have one in the chamber, I'll never know. But he goes, and he goes to rack one in the chamber and it jams. So he's like, don't move motherfucker. And I look and he's like, and it jams. And at that point, I look over at this guy to see if he's got it. So I, all in one motion, instantly, I knew my life was on the line. In one motion, I, I reached up and I grabbed his hand with the gun was pulled my gun and I was looking at him to make sure he didn't have a gun, but he dives out of the car thinking I'm gonna shoot him. And I, I got this guy, he's trying to wrestle. I got his hand with the gun. I put the gun out the window, bang, 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 bang. Drop a couple shots, his hand goes limp, the pistol falls into my back seat. I throw it in gear, pull off. I get about a house, couple houses away, I hear one gunshot, boom, just one. And I, I get so mad. I swing up in a driveway and I'm aiming. And there's like four of them out in front of this house now. And the one dude's in the on the ground because he's crawling behind the car. And I start aiming. Pa, 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 pa. And I have this shootout with these freaking guys. and I mean, this, but then I, I take off. But really, that's not even the craziest one. The craziest one was when I got stabbed and and hit in the head with a baseball bat. In uh, same same kind of neighborhood, I was dealing drug dealing with this guy. And uh a guy named Lorenzo, this big black dude, high I liked, he was a good dude, man. He, he had my back, solid guy. Um, and I was going to pick up some dope. This is heroin, so I was selling heroin at the time. And uh, I see him and his brother in the corner with some dudes in, the, in front of a house. So I pull up, jump out. I'm in a Mustang, I jump out. I'm like, yo, what's up, low?" And the guy who on the porch, one of these guys, stocky black dude, real black, he says, take your bitch ass across the street, whatever, white boy, whatever. And I say, hey, man, it's cool, man. This is my boy, you know, this is... Lorenzo's my boy. And Lorenzo says, oh, it's good, he's all good, he's good people, that's my boy. He said, I don't give a F who he is, man, tell him to take his bitch ass across. I said, hold up, man, you don't even know who you're talking to, bro. I'm like, I'm not the guy, ain't no bitch ass nothing, you know? And so he comes over with a bottle, he's got a big freaking 40 ounce bottle, he goes, and he's he's circling me with this bottle. (laughs) Because my boy, he starts coming towards me and my boy says, don't do it. That white boy will put you in EMS, the hospital. That's what he said. He, that white boy put you in the hospital. He ain't the one. And he says, F them. And he, I said, let him go, low. Come on, come on. So we're in squared off in the street and he's circling around me with this bottle. He's going to try and he, I know he's going to try and smash it into my face. He's like, what's up? What's up flinching? I'm like, yeah, so he tries to smash his bottle off me. I duck it. It hits me in the collarbone. Which actually hurt like hell. It bounced off the uh, off me and broke in the street, but it, it left a cherry on my collarbone. and It hurt for like a year sore. So I, as I spin back like this, and I come back, wham, jaw, jaw shot. You know, just wham, knock him out one punch broom, and he goes straight down. And his boys like, what the frick? And then I should have left it. I should have just left it at that. I knocked that guy out, I proved my point, whatever. But instead, I wanna be a tough guy. So I get on top of him and I freaking pound him, bro. Pound him bad. So then I tell Lo, you know, I'll, I'll be back later, whatever. So the next day I go to Lo's house, it's just down the street, by the way, from this dude. I I, I beep the horn, his friend Pat comes out. He says, uh, Lo's eating, he'll be out in a minute. And then he says, you shouldn't have done what you did, bro. I'm like, what? He's like, that guy down the street, he's crazy. He's like, we don't even deal with him. He's a lunatic. You know what I'm saying? We don't sell him dope. We don't know. I'm like, I said, what am I supposed to do? The guy comes at me with a bottle. I was like, so he said, I'm saying saying the bad guy's bad news. So I'm sitting against the front of my car, just, just chilling. And with this guy, Pat, waiting for Low to come out. And all of a sudden, bang, something hits me in the back of the head hard. And it's shocking. You're caught off guard. You're just like, bang, stars. You're like, what the fuck was that? And I, as I turn around to look... This guy's got a baseball bat. He's wound up with this bat, and he just cracks me right across the head right here. Splits my head open. I still got a big scar there, and it knocks me back against the car. And listen, bro, James, this is where, you know, you know when you're in a life-death situation, I don't know if you've ever been. God, God forbid if you have, but um, in my mind, he was trying to kill me. So in my mind, I got to kill him. That's how I reacted. So I bang against the car, I'm like, this dude just tried to kill me. Oh, by the way, the bat went broke over my head. It broke and I heard it bouncing down the street and I could wrap it around my head. And I heard clink, 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 clink. And I look and I see it flying down the street. And I'm like, this guy just tried to kill me. So I turn around and I grab him by the throat as hard as I could. And I tackle him, boom, punch him. And he, I get on top of him and I start actually with both hands. I'm crushing his throat, crushing. It was, it was gnarly, bro. There's like, I was choking him and smashing his head off the concrete, saying, You're trying to kill me. You're trying to kill me. And I'm just, just, I mean, you know, you got strong hands. Man, you work out, you got strong hands. Imagine if you try to squeeze somebody's neck as hard as you freaking could, just as hard as you could. <laughs> the dude's blood squirting out of the guy's nose, mouth. He's choking. He knows he's dying. He's looking at me like, you know, this guy's killing me. You know, and you can't do nothing about it. So his boys start kicking me, right? And they're kicking. one, smashes the bottle off my face. I don't let go. I'm still pounding this guy's head. Another one, they, they punch and kick me a few times. I won't let go. But out of the corner of my eye, I see a guy coming with a two by four. You know, and I'm on this guy, killing, trying to kill him. Blood's all. This guy's out now. He's not even conscious. And the guy comes up with this two by four, this big two by four, and he's like winding up to hit me in the back of the head. So at that moment, I lunge forward, and the two by four comes across the back of my leg, tears my hamstring, like tears it right off. I get up and run. I run so fast, I run out of my shoes. So it's summertime, and by the way, I got to preface this with. This is the worst ghetto in Detroit. Detroit's got a lot of ghettos. This is probably the worst one in the whole city. Very bad area. There are no white people. I was, I was out of place. It's this stupid kid. So I run, these guys chase me and I'm jumping fences through backyards. Like about every third house is an abandoned house. You know what I'm saying? And, um, and there's, some people got Rottweilers and pit bulls in their backyards and I'm running barefoot. I'm jumping these fences. These guys are chasing me. I'm running for my life, so I'm terrified. So I was like, you know, I get away. I was hurtling these fences, going right over them. And uh, I did hear one gunshot like a few minutes later, and I'll tell you why. So I get to, I run like three, four, five blocks. It's a crazy story. I get about five blocks, and uh, I'm out of breath. I'm in an abandoned house backyard by, behind the garage, and this is, it just got dark out, so it's like about 10 o'clock at night in the summer. No shoes, no shirt. I have no shoes, no shirt. I'm bleeding everywhere, man. Oh, by the way, I got stabbed. One of the guys stabbed me. So while I was on the dude, one guy ran up and he stabbed me and luckily when he came from the side, it went in like on an angle, so it didn't like penetrate. So it came through here. I got lucky, just nicked the lung. But I didn't even know I'd been stabbed at the time because I was trying to kill this dude. And so I'm sitting on the side of this uh, this uh, house, breathing, you know, just this. know, what the frick just happened? And then I heard a gunshot and I'm like, I had a friend who recently had been killed, beat up and died and I remember thinking to myself, I wonder what he was going through those last minutes, like, what was going through his mind as he knows he's dying, he just got, somebody took a big planter smashed it over his head after they beat him up and stuff and I go, man, I know what it feels like now, this is what it feels like and then I said to myself, no, I don't want my girlfriend to get that call so I just said, I'm not gonna, so I got up and I jumped a couple fences, started walking down the street I'm covered in blood, I mean, it's covered in blood and uh, I actually saw my car drive by so as I'm hiding, I see my, I left the keys in my car, man. I left the keys like a dummy. Schoolboy era? Stupid, man. So now I see my car drive by, I think it's them. But it's not. It's Lorenzo and his brother, and they're looking for me. They're driving around looking for me. And he ran them off. He shot a shot at them. They were coming to burn my car with gas. They broke the back window while they dump gas, and he came out to get away from my boy's car. And they said, man, up that way, but." And he shot a shot at him, Bang. That's why I heard a shot. Boom. And they, they took off. So. And then they were driving looking for me. But I didn't know. I thought they are trying to find me and kill me. So I jumped a couple blocks. I'm walking down the street. Um, and I'm so thirsty because it was a hot summer day. I just ran like six blocks. I've been stabbed, so I'm losing all this blood. So I see a a faucet on the side of a house. So I'm gonna walk over and try to get a drink, right? I try over it, it don't work, right? And I hear some lady go, hey, get away from my house. Hey, get away. And I stand up, I said, I'm sorry, ma'am, I just wanted some water, I want this black lady, right, it was an angel. And she comes running over from across the street and she says, what happened to you? Did you get in a car accident? I said, no, I got jumped. And she's like, oh my God, baby, come on, come here. She walks me up to her house Uh, This is where it's crazy. I remember the house had a a white and green house, bacon lot next to it, green awning, green chairs. She sits me down, brings me a glass of water and a clean white towel, like a hotel towel, To put because this is where all the blood was pouring out. She didn't know I was stabbed because everything's covered in blood. She says, put that over your head. I called an ambulance, da-da-da. I ended up passing out. Like, I, uh, that, that was it. I probably was out for 20, 30 minutes. And then an ambulance came, and they took me to the hospital, and they stitched me all up. And, they, and this doctor named Dr. Wheaton, he did plastic surgery on my head. He said, I, you need to sign a waiver because, like, I'm not certified to do that type of surgery. But if I don't, you're going to have a dent in your head, and your eye might sag or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, do it, man. i like, hook it up. And I was in a lot of pain. My leg hurt the worst. The, the interesting part about this story, bro, is... So you know, I, I survived, my girl comes, they called my girl and said, I'm in the hospital emergency room, coming in screaming and crying. She's not supposed to be back there. She goes running, there's orderly chasing her. Ah! She goes screaming and I go, Mom, I'm fine, I'm fine. They wouldn't tell me, they wouldn't tell me what was wrong. They just said, he's in emergency room. Is he alive? And he's alive, that's all I can tell her. So she's freaked out when she gets there. I just wanna go take a bath, man. My leg hurt from where they hit, the, hit me, the two by four. Yes, I had a headache from the bat. but. So a couple days later, bro, I went to go first of all the next day I took that doctor out to lunch. I said thank you for you know doing what you did he hooked me. Up. And then a couple of days later I went to um try to find that lady that, that that house couldn't find it, bro. Went up and down every block, every block, every block could not find that house. And still to this day I think she's an angel, man. It was an angel something. I, I could I wanted to thank her. I just wanted to say, you know, thank you thank you for that. So What age were you then? That's yeah, about 21, 22. So you're
1: still young? Mhm. What's the What's the biggest regret you've had in that life? Well, the biggest regret is obviously
0: being a scumbag, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, being a bad guy. You know, it's not to be proud of. I just, you know, I do these interviews like this to kind of promote my books and my apparel and the things that I'm working on. But I regret being being a scumbag, not being a normal person. You know, I could have went to school, I could have started a business, I could have got a job, I could have whatever. But in my in my mind, none of that was an option. You know, I was I was raised around these criminals and they always had an angle for everything. And so all I want to do is go to the beach, work out, chase girls, go to the club, you know what I'm saying? Hustle, I could always hustle money, there's always different ways. So I regret uh, that part, plus anyone that I hurt, or, you know, obviously, I don't, you know, most of the people I did hurt were kind of usually bad guys or had it coming, you know, kind of. Does but, it replaying really in your mind though? Screams and shouts and people? Well, I have dreams, yeah. I have dreams. I have dreams that uh, mostly when I'm back in prison, the dreams about prison, but, but I, I regret all that, man. I, I regret not. The thing is, bro, James, what people didn't know about me is I was this really like a savant. You know, I had this creative mind. Nobody knew I was this like creative. I used to read books. I'd be sitting at the dinner table. There'd be mob guys there and they'd go, are you reading a book, man? You know, he's a tough guy. All you do is fight and get in trouble. I'd be, Dude, I, had, I got eight felonies by age 17. Pipe bombs, fighting, felonious assault, stolen property. I'm 70, and then the steroid bus. So, I mean, just I'm in and out of jail all the time, trouble fighting. Everybody in the family knows it. They all know it's like screwed. He's a screwed up kid, you know? So, but nobody knew that I had this gift as a writer. So, I regret not tapping into that, 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 you know, the talent that I had as a young man. Nobody tried to push me to go to school or or try to use my talent or gift. They're just, I was thrown to the wolves, you know, just like whatever. So, yeah, I, I have that's I have a lot of regrets. But thing is, you know, I live a good life now, so I, I, I try to. Yeah. What age did you go to
1: prison? I was twenty nine. Yeah. What was that for? Uh, and well... how was your life like before that? Were you just a loose cannon? Were you just. Yeah. Lost, we drinking, taking drugs or anything. I did use drugs towards the end, and that's what made me crazy. Yeah, um, I live a good life all my
0: twenties. Um, I never went to prison. I got busted with uh, you know eighteen pounds of weed and did like five months in jail. Other than that, I've caught cases, but I beat them. You know, with ju- lawyers and stuff, there couldn't get me. Um, I have to tell you about New York. Don't let me forget that. And anyways, I uh, let's talk about New York, now. Well, okay. So this, let me finish about that. My whole 20s, I lived a pretty normal life. I had a girlfriend. I had a nice house, garage full of toys. I'd go hunting and fishing, but I was a gangster. I did criminal stuff. That's all mm-hmm. I. So I leave the house in the morning. My girl didn't know where I was going. Like I just, I'd leave and say, All right, I'll see you tonight. Where are you going? I gotta do this. Do that, and then the whole day, I'm out there with a gun and doing criminal, robbing banks and crap. So I ended up at 29 years old. This is a funny story. I, My girlfriend, I had put a shirt and a suit on like this and getting ready to leave the house, I put a pistol on my waist and she said, it's bill day, you know, I need to pay the bills. I'm like, "What? your half is 2,200, we gotta pay taxes. And I pull out my knot, I only got $700, bro. And I don't have any dope. So I was gonna go buy some dope with that because I was out there towards the end. So I said, all right, listen, I'm gonna go to the bank and pick up the rest of the money. I'll be back in a minute. And I kissed her and she kind of looked at the gun, looked at me and I'm like, yeah, I got a gun. So I went to the bank and I put a fake bomb in the bank. Then walked out, got in the drive-through, drove through, hit the thing, and said, "Listen, there's a there's a bomb in the bank. I need seventy five thousand dollars out the window in the next ninety seconds, so the, ba- the bank goes bomb. A bank goes boom." And I said, "Here, I detonated with this." So the lady, said, you know, she freaks out and they pack a bunch of money in an envelope and shoot it out the thing, and I throw it. I know it's not seventy five grand. You know, I don't, I don't. I think it was like. I don't know, how it, was. it wasn't that much, like 20 grand. So I say, yeah, I'm good. I got the money, right? So I'm, I'm gonna go get some dope and then I'm gonna go give my girl the money that I, whatever. Like I get in a high speed chase, they catch me, I, I crash, I get out with the money and run. Um, I mean, I'm serious high speed chase, like 120 miles an hour with like eight cops behind me. I, I'm flitting, and I'm driving like a maniac, bro. I went through a red light and did a Hail Mary. Through a red light, doing like a hundred on a side street, side street, there's a red light. I'm just going, and I go, Dude, just blow right through the freaking red light, bro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And then I go, <sighs> so then I go get some dope from my friend. I was gonna go back later and get like an ounce, but I just got like a few bundles or whatever. And as I'm getting ready to like snort some, all of a sudden I hear, I hear the cops go. Anyways, they had a tracking device in the money. You know what I'm saying? So they knew where I was. They had called off the chase because they were driving you know, crazy, but they knew where I was. So they kept finding me. i get away and if I, eventually I crashed the car, I got out and I ran, they surrounded me and they came up and beat my ass, bro, beat, beat my ass. Six cops, cuffed me and stomped me out. Like one of them crashed their car or something, so they were mad about that. But anyways, and that was my last day of freedom uh, was, was that day. And uh, I went to the jail and so I, they ended up, it was a crime spree. So over like a couple of weeks, um, I racked up 17 capital crimes that all carried life: extortion, bank robbery, armed robbery, more armed robbery, more bank robberies. Da 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 da. A lot of them I beat most, and there was a kidnapping in there. But the extortion
1: got me the biggest time. I got 13 years for the extortion. And um, why did why did you kamikaze the bank job? Did you have a mask or anything? No. Were, were you high on drugs? Yeah, but I I wasn't high at the time, but I was using drugs.
0: I just didn't care. I put a little bit of a disguise on. I had a shirt and tie with sunglasses. And I walked in there like I'm gonna fill out a bank thing. And I set this orange plastic thing with a bunch of wires sticking out of it on the counter. And I walked out, jumped in my car, drove through the drive-through, hit the button, and just said, hey, listen, there's a bomb on the counter. And then i give you the money. So I think I think I'm gonna get I've done bank jobs before, I'd robbed banks before and got away with it. Just with notes. Walk in, give me the money, they give you a couple thousand bucks, you walk out. So I thought it was good. You know, this is my my new way to do it, though. I thought it was a great idea. But so they send the money out in a bag, and in the bag is a tracking device. I just throw it on the counter on the seat next to me, and I, I'm good. I get away. No, well, so I end up I end up in prison. But um, but I will I yeah, I wanted to tell you about New York too, because it's it's interesting. When I was uh Twenty years old or twenty one, something like that. <sighs> Tony Jack sent me to collect money from uh, a, a gambler who's a young guy. He's only like twenty one year old kid, right? He says this guy's giving me trouble, man. He's he's ducking my bookie. Is what he said. So the the bookie that works for Tony, called Tony Tony, said I can't find this kid. He owes me ten thousand bucks. You know, can you help me find him and get the money? He calls me because that's what I'm good at. You know what I'm saying? So. I end up going to his house, and he was hiding, obviously. His mom says, "Uh, I haven't seen him in a while, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, listen, I knew he was in the military. He had been in the military. I said, listen, I'm an army buddy. I went to high school with him. I'm home on vacation. I wanted, wanted to see him. I love the guy, you know? She's like, oh, okay. He's staying with his dad, you know? So here's his number to his dad. So it's only a couple miles away. I drive to his dad. It's knocking the door. The kid opens the door, right? I pull a pistol, and I push him into the house. I said, listen, man, you're ducking Johnny, you owe him that money, you got to pay up, bro. And he's saying how it works. And he's like, oh, I'm gonna pay him, I'm gonna pay I'm gonna get listed. You're not answering his calls. You know, you're not, you know, you're hiding from him. You're not, you moved out of your mom's house, you're hiding, you got to pay. And at this moment, in comes walking his, his dad, his older guy, he kind of looks like a biker, you know, a big burly guy. And he's like, what's going on? I got a gun on his son, you know? And I said, sit down, man. Sit down. There's nothing bad's gonna happen. I'm gonna kill you. I'm like, Your son is 10 grand in debt with a bookie, he's got to pay off. And he looks at him and says, What the frick are you doing? I said, Yeah, this is when I said, I said, Tony Jack sent me. Do you know who Tony Jack is? And the kid didn't know. He's like, No, but the father's like, Tony Jack alone. I said, Yeah, he freaking goes like this to his son. He's you idiot, you know who these people are, you know who you're freaking dealing with, you're gonna get yourself killed, blah blah blah. I'm like, listen, man, there's gotta be a way to pay this off. I'm just I'm the good guy, I'm here to help you. Let's get this paid off and get it out of the way. Do you have any assets? Do you have a car, a boat, some four-wheelers, you know, some savings, whatever? And the guy scratches his head. He thinks, he says, all I have is my gun collection. Now I freak out. Now I'm just like. Gun collection. And I'm thinking, because my dad's a gun collector and there's guns in every room. So I'm thinking, this guy's probably got guns all over the house. And now I'm super nervous. I got this gun on. It's a 357 revolver. And I'm like, listen, bro, if you try to be a hero, I don't want to do this. I don't want to hurt you. I just want to get this debt taken care of. Don't do nothing crazy. He's like, no, I'm not going to. I said, how much is your gun collection worth? And he's like, I don't know, probably twenty five, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. I got a couple hundred guns or whatever it was. He like, says, I got this huge safe. So here's the plan. I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to take all your guns and then we're gonna sell him and pay off his debt. You're gonna report them stolen and collect the insurance money. So you're gonna get, you know, and I'll, whatever I sell, whatever I make past the 10 grand on the guns, I'll split it with you. So you're gonna double dip, you're gonna get money from the guns, you're gonna get money for. he says, okay. So he's like, well, how are we gonna do it? How's it gonna, like, I have this huge safe that's bolted to the floor, you know what I'm saying? It's not like somebody could just come in and steal it. I said, we'll rip it out of the floor. Cause he says, if I have a safe, like, how are you going to steal them? Most of the guns are in the safe. You can't just walk in and open a safe. It's going to look bad. The insurance company is going to think that it was an inside job. They're going to think it was a bullcrap job. So I said, we're going to st- take the whole safe. So when the insurance company comes, the police come, make a report. So you came home. They broke it, kicked in the door. They ripped the safe off the floor. They took it. And so that was the plan. So we end up, I call my uncle. He comes with a van. It takes us like four hours because it was in the gun it was in the basement. The gun case was in the basement. Uh, uh, safe in the basement so it's, it's, it's so heavy man it's like 800 pounds with the guns so we got a dolly and we're pulling it i, was, I got the dad and the kid helping me get this stuff off. we steal these guns and here's where it gets it was bad so i get all these guns and i call my black friends in the hood and these gangsters and, and, and drug dealers i said i got a bunch of guns for sale um you know let's have like an auction so i go to one of his house he's a vacant house it's his grandmother's house he just inherited it. this is ghetto and i lay out like freaking $10,000 worth of guns on the floor. And he's calling all his boys, come over, come over, come over!" and they're like, I'll give you $300 for that one. I'm like, $400. So I'm just selling, $300, $400, fine. I'm getting all this money for these guns, right? And I end up selling all the guns for like 25 grand, and I didn't uh, give the, the dad nothing. I just kept all the money. Like, F these my efforts. So what happens is, one of these drug dealers, black drug dealers get caught with a gun. And the uh, ATF says to them, where'd you get the gun? And he tells them, I bought it from some white, <coughs> some white, white good, like a good looking young white kid, right? So the cops are like, well, the gun traces back to this dude's father, right? So the gun, they look at the, the, the father, they investigate him, and they, the kid, it's the, the, uh, the, a good-looking white kid. So the son is a good-looking white kid. So the, co- the ATF thinks the kid stole the guns and, and sold them all these drug dealers, right? Now the kid flips on me, and he says, no, 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 this guy Al, he did it. He's the one who did it. He, he extorted me. I owed some money, and he made me pay to gun. The, he told the whole play. But all I had is my first name, Al? And so they're trying to tie it all together. I was in like databases and investigation. And I find out there's a, a, a warrant for my or not a warrant, but an investigation. My uncle tells me, you, you gotta get the frick out of here, man. You gotta you gotta go. So my sister had just graduated from college, and she says, do you wanna get a house together or you wanna move to New York? I said, perfect, let's go to New York, get the frick out of here. So I had an alias. I had this fake ID, the a real ID. Guy kind of looked like me, guy named John, I won't say his last name, but I had all the information, social security, birth certificate, all that. And so I ran to New York and went to Brooklyn, and it was it started a new life in Brooklyn. And then my my sister says, "You got to get a job. You got to work." A job work? I don't know how to freaking work. I don't have any skills. What am I gonna do? I actually did try to get a job at an import exporter called Yanni Ben Moshe's um, uh, Alex Import Export's name of it. I ended up scamming a bunch of money from them, writing myself a fake check and cashing it, and they found it was me, and I got fired. I only worked there for like three weeks. So now. My sister's like, you gotta take some money and take some money in, right? So I I talked to my uncle Pete. He says, Listen, I have some friends in New York. They're friends of ours. You you know what that means? So, friends, so for people who don't know, friends of ours means mafia, but I'm not a made mafia guy, you know, nor is my uncle. But when he said, You know, I have some friends from New York, they're friends of ours. Maybe they can put you to work. I'm like, Yeah, give me the number. So I get the guy's number. I come meet him at a club called McManus here in Manhattan, somewhere in Manhattan, right? And I I don't know what he looks like. He's this guy named Vinny, right? I walk in, there's one guy at the bar, this little skinny guy wearing a, a trench coat and a fisherman's hat. So I'm not thinking this is the guy, the mob, it's a mob guy, he's, he's for the Lucchese crime family. He's a made member of the Lucchese crime family. So I come walking up and I sit next to the guy and I said, uh, you Vinny?" He says, he doesn't look at me. You Al? I said, yeah. He's, he's, I said, uh, he says, what do you do? I said, do anything. He says, anything? Still don't look at me. I said, yeah, I do anything. He's like, anything? I said, yeah, man, I can do anything for the, right, for the right money. He looks at me, finally looks at me, he goes, anything, you do anything? I said, yeah, man, and whatever. So he says, all right, listen, I'm gonna hook you up with these guys. I want you to call them. They're young guys like you, they're hustlers, they'll put you in the game and help you make some money. Because he's like, I know your Uncle Pete. I want to help you out, Uncle Pete. So a couple of days later, or a day or two later, I go meet these two guys, Little Vinny and Tommy, these guys from Brooklyn, right? And they're dressed like this, like, so, they're the little young mob guys, like wannabes, kind of like they're not mob, but they're like wannabe mob guys. And I sit down in this restaurant with them and I'm like, they, they really like flip it. They're like, they, they're like way too like cocky, right? And I said, What's up? I'm Al from Detroit. And they're like, Yeah, Detroit. You know, I heard of it. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Yes. Yeah. So I said, What do you guys do? And they're like, Man, Money's easy. I said, Well, what do you make? What do you, how you make money? He's like, I would do money all over the place. So I say, Like, like what? And he says, Well, this is what's funny. He's like, we sell black boxes. Do you know what those are? So, a black box is a, was back in the day when you had cable and you had all the, you know, you could click, 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 click all the cable channels. A black box would steal all the cable channels and you could get all the pay per views, all the fights, everything for free. And they're $100 for me. So, I call back to Detroit and tell all these guys, I'm like, I got these black boxes for $100. i will give them to you for 300 Everybody's. Uh, tons of them. But the funniest thing was, I mean, I did some really you know, crazy stuff. I'll tell you about a robbery jewelry store. But uh, the funniest thing was they had this little device. You remember this device where you'd re- like speak into it and remind yourself, like pick up milk on the way from home from work, right? You'd put it on the little thing. And then after work, you'd hit it and go, oh, yeah, pick up milk, right? So they programmed it to make the sound of coins going into the payphone. So every coin, like a quarter, go brr, 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 nickels. They all had their own little s- sound. So the guy said to me, come here, I'm going to show you. Call your girlfriend in Detroit. I'm like, call my girlfriend in Detroit. That's going to be freaking 20 bucks. He's like, just try it. So I dial it up. and says, please deposit $14.75. The guy takes the thing, goes up to the microphone. Ching, it goes through. I said, oh my, that's crazy. He's like, like, every drug dealer I know wants one of these because you're constantly putting cords in the call calling, beeping, whatever. So I said, how much for those? And he's, they're like 60 bucks. They last about three months and the battery dies. So I'm selling all these things. But uh, I was... These guys I was working with, they see the little petty stuff, you know. Like and I'm like, I need to hit a real score, man. I need to make some freaking money. So at one point they had, they come. This is hilarious. There's a building called Cherry Hill, Cherry Hill Textile in Brooklyn. Building's probably still there. Maybe they tore it down. I don't know. But it had closed like 10 years before. Inside of it was like I'm not joking. Like at least probably eight or 10 million dollars worth of uh, fabrics, textiles, things that make you know whatever, everything. And there's oh, thousands and thousands of rolls, right? And so they said, we can't sell it, but we can just get the copper out of the wires and the walls. Like, Why would I do that? I'll sell this fabric. So I took it on into my own. They, they, it was like below them, these two mob guys, kids. Like, I'm not going to steal fabric. To get it. I end up getting all the swatches, little samples, and taking them to the Garmick District here in Manhattan and say, do you want to buy any of these? I have 100 yards of this. I have 200 yards of that. And they're like, yeah, 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 bring it. So what ended up happening is, first we were going in there through a window, but they put a metal thing over it. So I take a sledgehammer and I smash a hole through the wall of <laughs> this building, bro. And I go in there, it's pitch black, it's dirty, it's old. And I take all these fabrics and I load them into the plastic rolls and throw them out the hole <laughs> in the wall, right? And then, I, then I call a car service, I say, like, I need a van. And the van guy would pull up, you know, because... I'd go like a block away, and I said, "Maybe I said we got to go pick up some textile behind Cherry Hill textile." And of course, the van pulls up. There's a hole in the wall, and all this stuff. And The guy's like, "No, no, 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 no!" I said, "Man, I'll give you an extra seventy-five bucks. I'll give you seventy-five bucks. We're gonna load it in the van. Just take me." The-. He's like, "Okay." So they throw it in there, and they take me to the 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 um, garment district, and I go to these textile merchants, and I'm like, "Here's," and they cash me out, bro. Cash me. I was making like eight hundred dollars a day doing it every day, and it was crazy. I mean, like forty thousand dollars before they finally they finally put a security guard on the place they they put a big metal thing over the hole in the wall and and they had a security guard patrolling dude i, said, I made 40,000 bucks my sister found the money underneath the sink i had it hidden up there and she's like why do you have all this money you need to give me some that was her reaction she's like you need to give me some of that i'm like i don't you no." Know, i gave her some like 1200 bucks but at one point i had i had this crackhead couple which is funny cuz it was this, a, a very pretty black girl and uh, her boyfriend, who was very quiet, I don't think he liked me, um, I knew he had a gun. I said, I'm gonna rob a jewelry store, and I tried to get Vince and Tommy to get in on it, right? I knew I could do it, because I cased the place out, right? And so, they're like, no, nah, I don't wanna do it. I'm like, you freaking guys are pussies." And I'm from Detroit, it was, I was just a lunatic, you know. they're not used to that. So I get this crackhead couple, and I said, listen, I want you to park the van around the corner and just wait, leave the side door open, and uh, I'm gonna go in there and get this jewelry, and when you, when i come running i'm gonna jump in i'll give you one piece of, of whatever i get jewelry you know i'm gonna get several thousand dollars so they had these boards on the wall in the jewelry store they're owned by asian people right and this is in brooklyn on third avenue and uh there's all these chains so they, they get a shorter one longer one longer one longer and they got bigger and they did diamond cuts and there's like there's like ten thousand dollars worth of gold chains on a board and i'd been in there before i bought a ring so they kind of knew who i was they, i didn't look like a freaking criminal and I was, I was dressed nice then and weren't thinking but to get in the store you had to get buzzed in or out so like if you're walking in they, ah, and they let you out or, ah, or let you in so you can't just grab and run right so i'm trying i'm looking at all these chains on this board kind of look at what i like and i'm waiting for someone to come in you know what i'm saying waiting for someone to buzz in and all of a sudden like i, I look glance over and i'm like five feet from the door and all of a sudden and as soon as they and somebody opens the door to walk in wham i grab this freaking whole board fistful of gold chains and i take off running and they jump over the counter and start running after me i was fast shit bro i was a fast young kid like at the time i was super athletic i was fast i played football anyways i come running around the corner and i dive in the side of this van and we peel off and i give them a nice chain it's probably worth like 800 bucks and the, the, so we're driving, and the guy says to me, oh, you, because he sees what I got. I got like $10,000. He's like, you got to give us more. I'm going give you more. I told you to give you one piece from the score. I gave you one piece. That's it. No, no, you're going to give us more. I said, L-. and then he knows I got a gun. He's got a gun. So I'm just like, man, I'm not giving you no more. So when we pull up to like the next light, I just said, yeah, well, whatever. I'm not giving you nothing. I open the door, and I jump out, right? So I end up walking into uh, a Nike headquarters place, like a you know, shoe place. Right, I just look around, you know. All of a sudden I turn around. And this freaking chick, crackhead chick, she's got a baseball bat. She follows me into the store with a baseball She don't even have shoes on. She's barefoot, this crackhead chick. A pretty chick, though, she's pretty. She could sing really well, too, which is crazy. I felt bad for her. Anyway, she walks in, she goes, you gotta give us more money. She got this bat. You're gonna give us, you're gonna give us more of that, or whatever. And dude, I she ends, I go, I don't like saying the B word call. I said, listen, bitch, you got the wrong guy, bro. I said, I'm from Detroit, I'm not fucking around. You swing that bat, I'm gonna take it and break your head open with it. You got that? You swing that bat. I'm taking it, smashing your head in. And she, she looked at me, and that, and then all these people in the store are looking. They're like, "Why well, the whole place stopped?" The chick, "You gonna give me?" I said, "Bitch, I'll smash your head in." When you swing that bat. You got the wrong fricking guy.
1: And she turned around and walked out. And and uh, and that was that. <laughs> it seems a very tiring life, draining oh, life. God. Try to live day by day, get a different score to try and survive and pay your bills. So, see when you got your 13 years, what was that feeling like? Was that a relief for you, or were you, yeah. you kind of because it just seemed as if you were living a hectic life, not knowing where you were going? Smart man, bro. You're smart man, you get it. Yeah, no,
0: I didn't enjoy that life. I never enjoyed that life. It was very stressful, and um, you know, you don't know when the cops are coming. Every car that gets behind you, you think it's a cop or a fed. Um, you don't know who you can trust. Your friend's trying to rat on you or set you up, or you know, you know, get you killed, whatever. So when I went to prison, I was very scared of going, like, having spending thirty years in prison. But on the other hand, bro, I was like there was a relief. Like, finally, it's over. I actually prayed to God a couple of days before this. I said, Father God, I said, I'm tired of this life. I don't want it. And I'm willing to do whatever I have to do to get out of it. I'm willing. I don't know what that is. But in my heart, I knew it was prison. But I didn't think it would be that long. I think it might be a couple of years, but I'm prepared. And like three days later, when I ro- robbed the bank or whatever, I, got, I went to prison and uh, I went to jail and, and got arrested. I was on a $5 million bond. I was all over the news, bro. It was like, they, they made me out to be a monster, which I was, I guess. I was running around freaking the east side, armed robbery places, bank robbery places. It was crime spree, man. I just took people's cars. It just was a nut. I stopped caring, bro. Honestly, when you, when you stop caring about your own life, like you don't care anymore because you hate your life, you just don't care, you do whatever. And if I get shot and killed in a robbery, so what? No, I didn't yeah. care. What was prison like? Prison suck, man. Prison's tough, dude. You know, I, I went into it thinking there's two things I can do. I can I can become... Like, I'm already a monster. People, I, I'm known for fighting, and that's what everybody knows me for, like, knocking my efforts out, tough guy, whatever. I can go into prison and approach it that way and just be the same lunatic, you know, I might have to stab some people because then fight you know, if you fight in prison, it turns to stabbing quickly. So you beat a guy up, now he's coming back with a knife, or his buddies are gonna come get you, or his gang, or his religious group, or whatever. They're all gonna get you. And so I went into it thinking I can or I can be cool or I can try to evolve. And like cause I discovered his writing. When I when I was in the
1: hole, I discovered his creativity. What were you in the hole for?
0: Knocking a guy's the eye in.
1: Yeah. Or the one at the start.
0: Yeah. And, yeah. Well, see, I, I went there for 30 days. But while I was there, I got into it with the cops coming back from court. They're the guys wrenching on my arm, right? I'm cuffed. I got like six cops around me. I'm a high-profile inmate, so wherever they, whenever they transport me inside the jail, there's always like six cops around me because I'm, I was listed as called very high security risk. I don't even know why, because my record and stuff. They says he's a very high security list, so he, we escort him. I don't, I went in my own cell. I never went in a holding cell with other people. So I was like Jeffrey freaking Dahmer to these guys. And the guys walking me back to the cell, and he's ripping my shoulder out, man, like just ripped. And I'm like, yo, bro, I know where we're going, bro. Relax, you're gonna fr- tear my shoulder out the socket he says shut up man mate shut up man mate no talking and I, I go oh i know what your problem is you got a freaking three-inch pecker and i say that these guys all laugh except him you got, you got a three-inch dick huh a little man syndrome so when i get in the elevator you're off camera when you when you when you walk in and you're off camera as soon as I step in the elevator, I feel a hand on my back of my head and I hear stop resisting. Wham and they slam me in there and they kick the shit out of me, bro. They just they just stomp me out. I'm cuffed. So the whole time I'm going, real tough guys, I'm huh? six of you against me while I'm cuffed. You gotta go home and tell your wives that you had one to go, you had to be a guy up today. I gotta tell you he's in cuffs, and there's six of you though, right? And they're like, shut up, shut up, and they're kicking me in. So I had to get stitches the whole nine, dude. They, my head was split open, bro. And that's when they brought me back to the cell and I sat there breathing out of breath, <laughs> bleeding, ripping all over the place. And that's when I said I saw that letter from my grandma, and I'm like, you know what, I could be a writer. And then a glimmer of hope. So I had like a a glimpse of hope at that moment. I'm like, maybe I can survive this. You know, maybe I can get through this. And so I, at that moment, I decided I'm going to change. I'm going to try to be a better person. I'm gonna I'm gonna do the right thing in in prison and and just change. So I kind of stuck to myself in prison. Why do you think you were so angry? It's a good question, man. You, you ask a good question. Um, I think I was so angry at the world for, because my childhood was so messed Did up. Did you not see a murder at five years old or something? My mother is mentally ill, so yeah. she was sick all, all her life. Like, mental. Yeah.
1: In and out of institutions and things like that. So, I, you know, I... It's, it's funny, because a lack of a mother's love, it destroys people. Yeah, And I see this nearly every podcast, because I interview mafia guys are debt collectors or violent men. They all come from broken homes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. A lack of love. Lack of love. And, And I think the other thing was, too,
0: that I'm half Sicilian on my mother's side, and I was told by, like, my uncles that you can never really be part of the family because you're not pure Sicilian or Sicilian on your father's side. So you can't, like, you're not good enough. That's kind of how I said, that's kind of the premise for my book. Did you always feel like an outsider? Yeah, yeah, and I had to prove myself. So I felt like I had to prove myself. And th- th- like I said, the premise for my book to be a king is about a half Sicilian dude, but he's half Sicilian on his father's side. But his family kind of looked down his, their nose at him because he's you know a half breed and he's not pure like them. They call it defetto, which means defective. So I always saw my thought my cousins and my uncles and all these men kind of looked at me like he's he's defective. You know, he's defective. He's not good enough. So I said, I'm gonna be a freaking a lunatic to, prove, you know, to try and earn my worth and get the respect. So, you know they Tony sent me one thing, he's like, I want you to put a guy in the hospital. I said, like, stomp the guy out and then I robbed him. And he says, uh, you know why'd you rob him? I sent you to just put him in the hospital. I said, ah, I, you know, I might as well rob him while I'm at it. You know what I'm saying? And he's like, well, I'm just saying, I, I, I like, did that for uh, acceptance. You know what I'm saying? I was trying to get the acceptance of the people that I guess I looked up to, which were scumbags, you know what I'm saying? So I, the, yeah. the crazier I acted, the more violent that I acted, the, you know, the more they like, eh? I'd be in the club with my cousins, right? Good-looking guys, they're always dressed nice. I didn't. I didn't wear suits and crap in the club. I wear a football jersey or something. And then, like, there's pretty boys and a bunch of them. They weren't gangsters and they weren't tough. They were maf- mafioso, but they were like racketeers, white-collar guys, bookies and loan sharks and businessmen or whatever. And then they get in this beef, beef with some dude in the club, right? Like somebody over a girl or whatever it was. And I walk over there and just, bam, and knock the freaking guy out. Boom, from right front. Of my cousins like. Holy shit, bro, guys in sleep, they had to carry him out of here. And the bouncers were always like, yeah, we'll get, we'll kick him out, let you stay, here's a beer. You know, they didn't want to be me to, you know, problem with me,
1: so they, they said, here's a beer for you, and they kicked the other. But the guy was like, you know, I'm messing with my cousins. So these cousins would be like, So what was the moment in prison when you decided, enough's enough, I'm tired, I'm drained, you're always in and out of prison, try to live day by day. What was the moment? What was the light bulb moment for you? That was the moment when I was in the hole. When I was, after I got jumped and
0: beaten, I was just like, man, this ain't the life I want. This is not who I am, man. All my life, I've been pretending to be somebody else. I've been trying to be somebody for, for everybody else. In reality, I, I like to think I was a nice guy. And I liked people. I enjoyed people. I enjoyed talking to a medium. I was a funny guy. People like me if they got to know me, but very few people got a chance to know me because my reputation was like, he's a crazy guy. You know, he's a gangster, he's a crazy, he's a criminal. Nobody, I walk into a room, you can hear the din change. You know what I'm saying? Everybody's talking and I walk in and what's that guy? And they'd see me freaking knock guys out. They'd see me smash people. I pulled guns. I, got, I pulled a gun on a guy in, in, a, in a club one time who was over a drug deal gone bad. I pulled, these guys, I, I extorted one weed dealer for a pound of weed, said, you're gonna pay a pound a week if you're gonna sell weed in my town. You know, and I told him who we were. And I took it. So the guy he got a weed from calls me. He says, You owe me for the pound. I said, I'm not paying you, bro. You know who this is? He's like, I know who you are. I knew the guy. I sold weed to him years ago. He wasn't a tough guy. He wasn't a gangster. He was pretending to be a gangster on the phone, talking crazy to me. I'll, I'll beat your ass, blah 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 blah. I said, All right, well, let's talk about it. I'm gonna come to your house. So I come to his house. It's a it, dude answers the door, dude's in like a three-quarter length trench coat, opens the door, and he says, Points to the thing. And the guy's sitting at the end of the table like he's a mob boss, right? The guy whose weed it was. And I He says, sit down. So the other guy sits down, pulls out a pistol, sets it on the table. He says, you owe me a thousand bucks for that weed. I ain't paying you shit. Now at the time, I'm like, I don't know if this guy's crazy. He's a murderer. And I don't know if the guy's going to kill me. So I, cool. I said, all right, bro. It's not that serious, bro. go get your money. He's like, yeah, go get my money. I said, all right, cool. I get up and walk out because I'm not going to freaking, you know, I don't want to die. So I said, yeah. So the dude who pulled the gun on me, I knew who he was. So I, I knew this girl. He liked this girl. I said, will you bring him to uh, Point Billiards, which is like a pool hall that turns into a club at night. I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna beat the guy's ass. I'm gonna, sm- I'm gonna smash this guy. I go, are you cool with that? Well, she was a descendant of the mafia too. So she was like, her family's mob too. So she knew the deal, she knew the play. I said, bring this guy to this, this club. I'm gonna smash his head and You're cool with that? She's like, yeah, I don't care, get him. So I go in, the, in this club and I knew the bouncer. I said, put me in the back in the kitchen. And uh, when the guy comes in, he starts playing darts. And I walk over there. I said, "Mother effer, you put a little gun on me." And I grabbed him and just smashed him. Started smashing him. Then I smash him on the ground. I'm choked up. Bang, bang, bang. And I pull a pistol. And there's like 50 people in here. So it's kind of early in the night. It's like eight o'clock. But there's like 50 people standing around. And I pull a pistol out and put it in his mouth. I said, "I'll blow your freaking head off, mother." Effer. You're playing gangster, man. You're playing with the wrong one. Playing gangster, mother effer. And when I see your boy, I'm gonna get his ass too. So I, he's all bloody. He's mangled. He's just like, "All right, man. All right." His guy's face is a mess. So I catch the other guy, the one whose weed it was. Like a month later, walking into a gas station with his girlfriend. He got long blonde hair, longer blonde hair, right? And I run up around the corner, I see him grab my hair and I start pounding and I'm beating his ass. Now I remember just a couple months ago, he was telling me he was gonna beat my ass. He was gonna he'll beat my ass. He was a gangster, blah blah blah. And I'm just smashing him, smashing. Him. Same thing, bloody mess, mangled his ass. And uh and anyways that that's the type of crap that I did
1: all the time. Yeah, but so- you say you were a bully sometimes as well, though. Like bully? That, no, right? no, 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 no. In fact, it's the opposite. So, so I was. You probably wanted to be the opposite, but your actions proved differently as well. Yeah, with the fighting, the stealing, the robbing.
0: Yes, yes, I agree, and I'm ashamed of that, and I'm sad about. When I, only people like like I was a bully's bully. I hated bullies. So it, you know this type of guy. You're in the club, right? And you see guys, I don't know, like we have the club circuit on the east side. So there's like 10 clubs. We all go, and you see guys from other neighborhoods all the time. You kind of know who they are. And uh, all of a sudden you see one starting to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So he's on steroids. He's juiced up and he's getting bigger. And he's walking around. And he used to be kind of a timid guy, quiet, just you know, hit on a girl, whatever. Now he's in the club talking loud, acting tough. He's like smacking his own homeboys in the head. Like, you know, and I'm watching him. I'm like, this motherfucker effort thinks because he's you know, put a little muscle on. He's a tough guy. And that bothered me, bro. That bothered me bad. And then so what I would do is if, like if there wasn't a lot of girls in the club and I wanted to go. I told my guys, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go to another club, strip club or whatever. And they no, nah, stay at him hitting in this waitress. And I said, no, nah, let's go. And they wouldn't go. I said, all right, I know how to end this. So I go walk over, I walk through the club towards this group of guys, and there's always a couple big dudes, four or five, and I walk by him and bang, I like knock his drink out of his hand, boom. The one who's been acting tough. And freaking I knocked him out. And what he, they they usually would say, "Oh, my bad, big dog. You know, my bad, my bad." And if they did that, I'd say, "Sorry, bro. Let me buy you your drink. You know, I buy you a new drink." But I was letting them know, like, "Listen, you ain't no tough guy, bro. There's tough guys in here. You ain't one of them. So stop pretending." But if they got tough, they go, motherfucker, what's your problem, If Motherf- My problem, I'll beat your ass. And they say, man, you ain't gonna be, boom, knock him out. And then I look at his boys, like, you want something too? And they're always like, well, and then they pick him up, pull them off. So I bully, I guess I did bully, you know, guys like that. Or like, when I, mean, I extorted drug dealers who I didn't like. If they were selling a bunch of weed or Coke or whatever in the neighborhood, and they were connected to the mafia, and they didn't have like no drug cartel connection whatever, I would go to them and say, listen, bro, this is our city. You have to pay a piece. If you're send, selling 10 pounds a week, you got to pay us a pound. That's how it works. But we have friends in the cops and we have judges and stuff like that. So if you ever get in trouble, you know, we'll we'll help you get out of trouble. We'll know if there's an investigation. I'll tell you, listen, you got this guy you're dealing with, he's a rat. You know, I could find all this out, so I'm gonna help you, but you gotta pay me, you know, a thousand a week or a pound a week. So that's a form of bullying, but that's just a typical yeah. what was the what's the worst thing about prison? The worst thing about prison is being surrounded by freaking bad guys, you know? Especially when you're trying to be a good guy. Like, you change your life, you change your heart, you change your mindset, your psychology. I wanna be a good guy, I wanna be a writer, live a normal life, I wanna be a good person. And you're surrounded by maniacs and lunatics and rapists and murderers and killers. And it's so violent and everybody around is angry. Uh, The racial gangs are really bad, you know, because they, you know, there's a lot of weakness in prison. The guys come to prison and they join gangs right away. They join a religious group, Islam, or they join gangs, regular gangs, whatever. And they're all joined gangs because strength in numbers. They're scared, you know what I'm saying? So I kind of understand it if they're weak. You know, they join gang. I didn't. I never would, and never did. And that's the thing in prison. Guys like me were seen as either crazy or or bad mouthing efforts. You know what I'm saying? And I guess I was kind of a little of both. People say this guy walks the yard alone all day. He ain't got a gang. He's in the weight pit working out. He's alone. Like this guy's got to be crazy. Like he just walks around alone in the prison. And that's what I did for 13 years. And I minded my business. Was respectful to everybody. And yes, I had a bunch of close calls. I did. I did beat up one kid who stole some some money from me. But um. But I just tried to be respectful. Stay out of the way. And the hardest part is just d- dealing with day in and day out of idiots. Like you know. Just straight,
1: yeah. straight idiot. When did you get out? 2017, or 16, 2016. So still recently, how's life been now, trying to make changes? Yeah, well, so, so like I said, I... I mean, it's okay changing in prison. You've got fuck all else to do but when you're out, the yeah. temptation, yeah. the stresses of life, trying to make money. Yeah. It's difficult, man. How's it been? So I get out. I, I had a head start because I had this woman. This woman who fell so in love. You fell
0: in love in prison. Are you still with this woman? Yeah, that's what I was talking about yeah, earlier. Yeah, 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 yeah. The publisher, the chick who worked for the mm-hmm. publisher, fell in love with me through letters and committed her life to me and waited almost seven years for me to come home. Was that the first time you'd been in? You'd felt love? No, I loved my first girlfriend. I was with the first girl for twenty years. So I was with her thirteen years before I went got locked up. We were engaged to get married. We had a nice house, and we had our second house, and then uh, and then I got locked up, and she kind of stuck around for like five or six years. You know what I'm saying? Supported me, letters, money, little, whatever. But then all she's got a new boyfriend. And, and I'm just like, well, go on with your life. You know what I'm saying?
1: How yeah. hard is that being in oh, an oh prison? God. And oh. you've got to love of your life. bro. Okay. Moving on with your life. And you can understand. Yeah. Also, but again, there's no loyalty. No. If that's your woman, exactly. death do them part through well that, sickness and fucking hell, whatever that, it is. Listen, dude. And the, the, and that's the, when you need them the most. But exactly. you can understand they've got needs as well. But for me... She wasn't the one No,
0: exactly. That's what I said, bro. This was a good woman, man. Her name was Ramona. She was a very good woman. And uh, she'd send money and come visit me and all that. But all of a sudden, all in like a few months, she stopped answering her phone as much, not seeing me. And I'm like, oh, she got a boyfriend. That must be it, right? So I call her just out of the blue and say, listen, go on with your life. Obviously, you got somebody, you know. I hope he's a good man, because if he isn't, I still got friends in the street and come see him. And she's like, oh, it's not even like that. And I'm like, but you have a boyfriend. She's like, well, I'm like, listen. Then she starts crying. She says, what, you don't even want to be friends? I was like, no, I don't want to be friends. Like, if you can't wait for me another you know, six, seven years, then you're not the woman for me. I'm sorry. I apologize for putting you through this. You know, I just, I'm sorry. But the woman for me would be the one who's willing to wait for me. But if you're not, God bless you. Have a great life. Make sure he's a good man. He treats you right. And I even had people go see her at her work. Two big henchmen went in there and said, what's up with this guy you're dating? He better be a good guy. Because if he isn't, we'll be back. And she's like, no, no, he's a good guy. So I just click up the phone, click the phone, and never talk to her again. This, this chick that I've been with for 20 years. So I gotta get in this very dark place, bro. Like, I'm in a dark place at this time. I've you been... ever though? No, no, not at the time, just dark, very lonely and sad. I'd just written my sixth novel, which is the one to be a king. So I kept myself busy writing, and i had very excited about my writing because everybody in prison loved it. They're all just like, dude, you're the freaking best writer I've ever read. Was over and that- over yeah. and over and over and over. Hundreds of guys are saying this, so I'm super excited about it. But um was that your therapy writing? Yes, it was my therapy hundred and that kept kept me sane. But this is where it's interesting is I'd only been like broken up with my girl for about six months when this chick from the publisher sent me a letter and said, I read these sample chapters online. I'd like to read your manuscript. I didn't know who she was. Well, the irony is she was actually from my neighborhood, bro. And I never knew her. She was this nerdy chick, this kind of like quiet, nerdy book reading chick. Now work for a publisher in New York. And so Anyways, I, I, I fell in love with her and that was how I got over my, my last love. And I was able to, it it came, she came into my life and I told her this, I said, when you came into my life, I was in the darkest, grayest point in my life, this sad, even my boy in prison, my best friend in prison with a pimp from Chicago, his name is Henry Davis. He just got out after 19 years and, uh, I supported him for years when he was in there after I got out. But he's like, "Hell, you're not yourself, man. You're not acting yourself. You just something went wrong. I said, hey, What do you mean, the frick? I got seven years left in prison. My girl just freaking, you know, moved on with her life and then 20 years, man. I was with the girl for 20 frickin' years, bro. And he's like, Man, you know that's when my other friend said, El, it's not something's wrong with you, man. Like, you're not yourself. Why don't I start a Facebook page for you? This is my friend on the phone. You know, I'm talking to a guy at home, my cousin Joe. I said, what's Facebook? And he tells me, and I'm like, oh, I see it on TV. He's like, yeah, I'll start a Facebook page for you and, and maybe you connect with some girls from the neighborhood or some old friends or whatever. And I'll put samples of your book up. People can know you're a writer and you're in prison writing. And so I, he did that. And then I, and that girl came around and we fell in love. And she, you know, waited so... Yeah, my, I, I, this, the next seven years were much easier because I had this amazing, beautiful woman waiting for me in my corner, preparing a life for me. So got us a house and got everything ready. When I walked out of prison, dude, like my boys picked me up, four of my boys picked me up to prison. Like, they, like, they did that on Facebook Live, like 15,000 people were watching it on Facebook Live as I walked out of prison and like, ah, they take me to breakfast and they give me some gifts. They give me an iPhone. I never seen a smartphone. Like at this point, I don't even know what, I, like I know what they are, but I never, I don't know how to work. They hand me an iPhone, they give some gifts, and they just hook me up and say, all right, now we're gonna take you up to Maria. Maria's five hours north at our house cooking this massive feast, oxtails and turkey and this all this stuff, everything I asked for, pecan pie, all of this. And then I drive up there and uh, we have this feast. It's actually a super emotional moment because I tricked her. She didn't know when we were gonna be there exactly. And, she, and so I told them to drive by the, it's not in the woods, in the middle of the woods. There's nothing there but wilderness. I said, drive by the house and drop me off and then give me 10 minutes. Cause my boys wanted to video it. They were like, oh, I gotta get this on video. You're like you with Maria for the first time as a free man. And I said, no bro. This is private, bro. This is between me. I know I'm going to cry. So I'm not, I don't want to, you know, I said, just give me 10 minutes. So drop me off. So they dropped me off in the woods about 100 yards past her house. The house. And she didn't think it was us because she heard the car go by, but like, I kept going. It's not dumb. So I sneaked through the woods. And I'm crunching through the woods. I'm sneaking. I, dude, this is the most surreal moment of my life. <clears throat> the, the, try to put yourself in my shoes. I've just been in prison for 13 years. This is the most surreal moment. I am in the woods. The sun is shining, it's a blue sky, I hear the birds, I hear the insects. I'm standing, free, all alone. It's the first time I've been alone in, in you know, 13 and a half years. And I'm just standing there going, oh my God, I'm free. Like I can't believe this is real, you know? And I looked through the woods and I could see Maria on the back deck. She's in a blue dress and she's sitting there. It looked like she was praying, which she was. And uh, so I come sneaking up and I get, I come sneak and walk up and go behind her. I call her Birdie. That's my name for her, Birdie. I said, What's up, Birdie? And she, tur- she Oh my God. She turns around. I jump the railing and I call, embrace her. And she's like, please never leave me. Please never leave me. Promise you will never go back. And she's crying. And I'm crying. And I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. You got me. You're stuck with me now. You're stuck with me for life. She's like, oh my god, I love you so much. I can't believe you're here. And then all of a sudden, my boys come walking around the corner after like 10 minutes. And we're still hugged up, crying and stuff, and they're videoing it. And uh, so it was a real sweet moment. And then um, the next day, we went to the courthouse in this little town this little tiny town and she written the vows and a clerk comes in the room courtroom and we read the vows and so as they're reading the chicks reading the vows i'm looking over at my boys and they're crying bro they're crying i start crying you know what i'm saying my girls the girls aren't really even crying all the dudes big tough guys you know detroit tough guys everybody's you know trying. and so i married my wife you know and then i um Right after that, I said to my cousin, would you baptize me in Lake Huron? I, I want to be, be a new man. I don't want any remnants of my old self left. Would you wash that away from me and baptize me in Lake Huron? So we drove like five miles to this really secluded remote beach. And it was perfect. It looked like you're in Tahiti. This blue turquoise water was warm. And they baptized me in there. And I came up. I did not want to get out of the water. It was so beautiful. And then I, that day, I—I I, I, after I was... I started my life, I started my new life after that day. And I just, me and my wife had a little bit of a honeymoon period where I was editing my book. I was kind of proofing, editing the final, before I published it. And we did camping. camp in, we did a bunch of camping and a little bit of traveling and just enjoyed life, man. It's just out in the woods. I had a four-wheeler, somebody gave me a four-wheeler. So I mean, I had everything. It was it's nice, it's beautiful new life. Oh, I loved it. I was out in the woods. I had trails that went miles. Like you know, you could go forever on these trails through the woods. And that's what I did every day. And then, um, then I published my book seven months later. And there was a lot of hype around it because I on Facebook and f- groups and whatever. Not a ton of hype, but I sold like I don't know five hundred uh, pre-orders, which is pretty good. Yeah, like five hundred pre-orders. And uh, and then I went live with it. And then just everybody starts going, bro, this freaking book. How many books have you written? Ten. Ten. And where can people buy your books, Gunnar? Amazon. Go to Amazon. Just go to Amazon. Uh, to be a king, Volume One and Two, or you you get my go to my website
1: too. What the is book, your website. Garner Detroit. See? And what about your clothing range and stuff? Promote it all. Yeah.
0: So so right after I launched my books, and they kind of shot to the top of the mafia is a very tough genre to crack. There's a lot of books. I shot to the top. I was number twenty eight at one point, which is huge. And um and I was listed. I, I remember I got suggested next to The Godfather. So you had The Godfather and then my book, like suggestions to people. Now I looked over and this book is suggested, next to The Godfather. I got a screenshot of it. I'm like, oh, that's freaking crazy, bro. And I buy books next to The Godfather. So yeah, and then I started Our Thing Apparel, which that's our logo, um, which is kind of a, a loosely, um, uh, not loosely, it's a kind of a mafia-themed uh, clothing line. Our Thing, if everybody knows who Mar- our thing, if you don't know what it is, it's cosinostra. So the term cosinostra, in English means our thing. Costa Nostra is the a euphemism for the mafia. That's what the mafia calls itself. It's it's our thing. And it means, you know, so anyways, I started this line clothes, its tracksuits, jackets, hats, hoodies, all this stuff and um and started selling it. People started liking it. And I love it. People all over the world I sent it to the UK, Australia, South Africa. And um <laughs> that, that's ourthingapparel.com. All the links to everything that I do, you can find it at my website gunnerdetroit at gunnerdetroit.com. My YouTube channel is gunnerdetroit. You can find that. I know it's not a huge channel, but soon I'm gonna be uh, doing a lot of, um, I used to have like 400 shows there, but my producer, I have a TV series that's in in works. I can't really say what that's about, but there's a documentary that's being made on me. And so what they want me to do is take down a bunch of these old shows. I I kind of self-produced them, low production value. And they're like, I want you to re-record these shows of me telling these stories. I, I have these crazy stories from my life, like the ones that I've told you just a couple of them, there's hundreds of them, right? They want me to re-record them for my YouTube. So if you go to my YouTube at Gunner Detroit, um, I have a bunch of those older shows. There's still like about 200 of them there. But the best ones, I'm going to re-record them while I'm promoting the documentary. You know what I'm saying? So I'll record these like 30, 40-minute stories, crazy, crazy shit that I did in the street. And then like, and then at the end of it, say so make sure to check out the documentary on Amazon or Netflix or whatever. So that's what that's what I got going in uh, a TV series. Uh, starring Armand Asante, I'm the lead writer. Armand is a Golden Globe, Emmy-winning actor. Um, Really cool story, it's got a bit of a mob twist to it, but uh, it's a really cool story, and uh, they, I was involved in it, and they were gonna hire a big-shot writer, and I'm like, why wouldn't you give me a shot at it? I'm a writer, and they're like, well, you're a novelist, you know, you write novels, this is a screenplay, I'm like, I write is what I do. I'm a creator, I'm a storyteller, give me a chance. And this is on a Zoom call with the producers and Armand Asante and all this. And they're like, they kind of look at each other like, dude, it's way hard, different to write it now. I said, give me a chance. So I said, okay. So I sit down, spend 17 days writing the script. I write the first pilot and first two episodes and I hand it to them. And I said, after they read it, they'll do a Zoom call. So I'm in the Zoom call and Armand is reading the script and he's going, this is what he says. In all my years, I've only encountered maybe two or three writers on your level, bro. It's like, that. I mean, Armando Santé this guy's done 100, 200 movies, whatever. And he says, you're in the top three writers I've ever encountered in my life. I was like, yeah, that's my first script. They're like, it's unbelievable. We have a great script. We're on. It's on. He said, green light, let's go. I can't wait to play this part. And then they flew me out to New York and I, his house, I spent three days at his house getting to know him and and the character and the script, whatever. And I came back and did it again another three days. So that's what I got going. What's the rest of the plans for the future, brother? Well, the plan for the future is this uh I, I I hope to have this documentary really expose my books that's the plan from the producer's angle the ultimately, the goal is to get my books to be a king made into films right This is everybody's goal. everybody's read them s- same thing. This needs to be made either a Netflix series or a big budget film, right So how do we do that? Well, we get gunner's story out there and expose his story to get people interested in his story and his book so so yes, he has this interesting story, this love story, you know, he grew up around the mafia and he was a gangster, and bad guy, girlfriend and his wife, but he also wrote these books, you know, so what are these books about? So you go read the reviews and you're like, people think they're fake, they're like, there's no way this book's that good, nobody could write that, and they, like, you know, these gotta be fake reviews, they're all organic. I don't know how fake reviews. But anyway, so the goal is to parlay the, um, the documentary and the scripted TV series Ultimately, into a, a project for the the books, right? And my, I have a new book called Snowman Chronicles about two huge cocaine smugglers. Some of it takes place in the UK. It's uh, it's it's all over the world. These guys have figured out distribution means all over the world. Um, and they, it's crazy billion dollar operation. Hedge fund managers, re- politicians, bureaucrats, a uh, 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 Saudi
1: oil sheik, on and on. It's all interconnected. So this is crazy story. This is a book I'll be releasing in, in a few months. So. Good. For anybody watching Gunner who's wanting to get involved in a life of crime, what advice would you have for them? Don't do it. You know what? Be an honest guy.
0: Be an honest guy. Work hard. Do not it ain't worth it. Nothing's worth it. You I mean there's nothing worse uh, uh worth losing your time. You see what I'm saying? Prison, it's you don't want to go there. You know what I'm saying? So just just figure out a way, an avenue to to make money legitimately. Don't be bad, be good. God rewards good. I know that. So I mean, if you if you if you're a good guy and you and you work hard to be a good person, um you could really do anything. But if you're a bad person and you're doing, you know, bad stuff like I did, ultimately you're going to end two ways. You're going to end up in prison or you're going to end up dead. And this there's no that's that's a dead ending, you know. You don't want that. Or some people cooperate and they get busted and they cooperate and they get out of it. And then you got to live with that the rest of your life, you know, and now you're a cooperator. Yeah. So, yeah, don't do it. That's my advice. Stay there. Gunnar, would you like to finish up on anything else? Hmm. I think that should be about it. I just wanted to say uh, thank you for having me on. I appreciate you. I hope everybody checks out my books, To Be a King. And you can, like I said, you can find that on my website, Gunnar Detroit. And do you have any last questions you might want to ask? Yeah, about? what's your biggest life lesson you've learned? My biggest life lesson I've learned is um, patience. You have to have patience. Sometimes you want what you want now. that's not when god's going to give it to you 13 years in prison telling me patience man but what i wanted in prison was the life i live today so in prison i dreamed about having this quiet life of solitude and you know living up north in the woods having a good wife woman writing my career as a writer i dreamed of that going out trout fishing all the time just peace and quiet i dreamed of that so I had to learn patience. And with people, you get people that you want to kill in prison. Every, every single day I was in prison, I literally fantasized about hurting people because there's idiots. Everybody, you know, they disrespect, and, you just, and you're thinking, you know, but you can't. you got to have patience. So learn patience and uh, over, uh, overpower the monster. I think everybody has the monster in there. You do too. You know, it's, people can either learn to, to control the beast or unleash the beast. Um, you obviously you've controlled it. So I wasn't able to control it for a long time, but now I can. So a lot of people think that this guy Gunnar is still, still dangerous. He's a bad guy. He could
1: be. Nah, no, I'm not. I'm
0: the nicest freaking guy you ever met.
1: Gunnar, forgive me the time and coming on the show. I genuinely appreciate it. Yeah. I wish you nothing but the best for the future, brother. Thank you. Take man. care and uh, speak Thank you. soon. God bless. Thanks God for having bless me on, you, brother. Take yeah. care.
0: Podcast Network.